Turkey hunting is one of my favorite things. And one of the key tools I use for turkey hunting is the Onyx Hunt Map. I use it incessantly when I'm hunting turkeys. Being able to find a new piece of public or gaining permission on private opens up opportunities for gobblers. Onyx Hunt has a special offer for you this spring. Use the code MEATEATER to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com hunt. You'll find more birds this season. I'm telling you, I rely on Onyx Hunt when I'm hunting turkeys. It is an invaluable turkey hunting tool. Hey, I'm excited to share our newest sponsor here on the Meat Eater Podcast, which is Poncho Outdoors. The reason I'm excited is I buy their shirts anyways. Dude, they make some good shirts. And they even have an option where if you're like a skinny dude, you can click like the skinny dude thing. It's great. Based in Austin, Texas, Poncho is committed to crafting the world's best outdoor shirts for men. Poncho is only sold on their own website. So head over to ponchooutdoors.com, use code MEATEATER, for a free hat or t-shirt with any purchase of a shirt. Poncho offers free shipping and returns, so you can try them out risk-free. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug-bitten, and in my case, underwearless. We can hunt the Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. Presented by First Light, creating proven, versatile hunting apparel from merino base layers to technical outerwear for every hunt. First Light, go farther, stay longer. Are you on, Phil? Might as well just cover this. We're on. Oh, okay. <laughs> I think a great app for Doug, and you could call it the Doug Duran, would be like you just turn your phone on. This would save Doug. This would save Doug a lot of trouble, especially if he cuts all of his fingers off in a farm accident. <laughs> like, yeah, he's looking. He's already got a maimed up finger. <laughs> if Doug had an app that he could just turn his phone on, right? Turn like the voice recorder on, and it would just fact check everything everybody told him for him, anyways. And then do alerts when he found a problem. <laughs> so that way Doug could like maintain eye contact with people he's talking to yep. and not be busy typing everything you tell him into his phone to find out that what you said isn't actually true. Yeah, right. He's fact checking you while still part of the conversation. Yeah, I'd be like, oh, you know, acorns, you know, they seems they sure they drop around, you know, October second. <laughs> well, actually, you know, if you look, you're like, yeah, October first <laughs> is peak acorn drop day. We had an argument about how many uh, a discussion, I should say, about how many acorns <laughs> an oak tree drops uh, when Steve was at the place one time and. Um, I don't know. It was widely varying. I said 10,000. He said 1,000 or something like that. And we were trying to find it on uh, Google as I do. And uh, as I'm, as I'm talking, as he's talking. (laughs) And uh, at that moment, 
a friend of mine calls and I said, well, this guy will know. And Steve goes, okay, this is the, whatever he says is the answer. And I think he said a thousand. And he's, I'm no longer friends with that guy. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like that's a conversation to have with Clay. I'm taking my, I'm taking my kids to to Doug Duran's this spring and, um, a lot of enthusiasm about ditch burning. Because <laughs> no. they got to burn ditches at Doug's. And they like anything that's on fire. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. And imagine a fire that's 300 yards long. <laughs> it's like, there's like for a kid, there's, you know. Nothing bad. Yeah, because the problem with every fire is, in their mind, every fire is not long enough. <laughs> but here's a fire that runs way down the road. <laughs> with a creek in the middle of it, too. That's the other yeah, part. Yeah, it's like of everything it. you possibly want. That way you can get burnt and two soakers. <laughs> and just to keep the Good. excitement alive, this past spring, I ended up moving the fire across the road and damn near burning my pine trees down. Yeah, I was getting a little stressed out. The pine duff caught on fire. Yeah. Mm. So the next thing you know, we had a hose down there and Jimmy was getting fire instructions from <laughs> Steve. I felt like putting a little helmet on him. They were like, okay, dial uh, nine one <laughs> and put your finger on the one. <laughs> uh, all right. So Doug's obviously here. That was uh, Sean Weaver's here. Corinne, Spencer Newhart's way down in the corner. Uh, Spencer's going to hit us with another little Google fact before we proceed. Phil. Who looked like a skater a minute ago, but you took that skater hat off. Uh, this is this is the hat I wear when um, my hair looks like shit. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Warm Springs production hat. That's right. Cute little bang sticking out of there, t-shirt. Oh, oh thanks, man. Richie. Richie won. Tell, tell everybody what you won, Richie. And were you surprised when you won? Uh, yeah, no, I was, I was way surprised. Nothing like that ever happens to me. Um, <laughs> um, I, I'm the podcast winner, the trivia giveaway. So, so how, how did, the, how did we know, how did like Meat Eater notify you that you won the thing and were coming to play <laughs> trivia? Uh, well, I was really bad about checking my email that week that I won and I almost missed out on it. Uh, oh, like they almost moved on to the next almost person. Almost moved on to the next person. you know that that's, that that's actually really strict? I, I, I believe it. It has to be, right? When I've been involved in TRCP giveaways, um, there's sort of like the set thing. It's like there's this set cadence in which you notify Right, especially and when then you playing. have to like bump along, and you can't. It yeah, I'll, I'll spare everybody. But anyways, you probably you probably did get lucky. I very lucky because uh, uh, one of your colleagues actually found my number somewhere, and Corinne called me out of the blue. See, she and might have broke some kind of law. Maybe I don't know what you guys' laws are on that, but <laughs> yeah, Richie. like the sweepstakes people, sweepstakes like the people, sweepstakes somebody. version of the ATF is going to kick the doors down. I hope not. At kick what the door age, down and rest Corinne. At what age do you decide if you're Richie with a Y or Richie with an IE? I did I that. see you're with Ooh, a Y. Oh, no, I did, oh, I did that. Oh. What, do you, what do you use? Oh, Y. Uh, you do Y? Uh, so you do R-I-C-H-Y. Yeah, since I learned how to write my name. Tucson, Arizona. Tucson, Arizona. If you had to put your uh, trivia skills on a sliding scale of 1 to 10, where would you land it? Uh, it depends on the day of the week. Really? Some, <laughs> yeah. days, you, some, some days you're pretty hot. Some days I'm hot. Some days I'm not. Really? Yeah. Spencer, hit him with a sample trivia. <laughs> A sample trivia? A sample trivia. Here's my favorite trivia question. <laughs> we use it all the time. Okay. Okay. Well, let me think of a good one. Name for me. Uh, okay. <sighs> I've, I've got a good one, but oh, I, don't wanna, him, I, don't, I don't want to burn it because I gave it to Spencer and it'll be a good one. For oh, here's a good trivia. one. This is Watch this segue. Pronounce <laughs> this word for me. <laughs> oh, Cows, coos, which version do you want? Oh, see, he already won. I already know that. <laughs> right. the, 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 answer, the answer was, the correct answer was, depends. depends. <laughs> I have me a brand new uh, sticker 
from Jim Heffelfinger, who's also here, and Ross Copperman from First Lights here, my esteemed colleague. Great to be here. Uh, Jim Heffelfinger. Um, I don't want to say you and Doug are my favorite people, but you're up there. <laughs> That's up good. There. I'll I take know it. it's me, Jim. Um, yeah. Brought me a sticker that says, see, here, here's the problem with the sticker. <laughs> I'm no gonna, okay, I, yeah, no, I'm going to read it like this. It's a sticker with a picture of Elliot Coos. Elliot Kaus. Well, okay. Get, Kaus. Just okay. like C-O-W-Z. Elliot, okay. This guy believed in yeah. levitation. Yeah. He was kind of a crackpot. Right. He was kind of a crackpot. He was like, yep. he, he had some hits. As all and, brilliant people are. Yeah, he had some hits and some misses. <laughs> uh, pronounced his name. Kaus. 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 And now there's a spirited debate whether you say a coos deer or a cow's deer. I now, would say there's not much debate. Everybody there says is coos. Because I, always, says coos. I always return to, um, I didn't know that these things existed until I became a subscriber to Western Hunter Magazine, published by Chris Denham. Chris Denham, yeah. Okay. And... Chris Denham told me that he'll say coos till the day he dies, <laughs> and he doesn't care what anybody says. <laughs> yeah. So I just adopted. There's a lot of people like that. I adopted that, but Heffelfinger actually wrote, you wrote like an academic paper. No, a magazine article. Oh, I'm which sorry. Be in the, yeah, it'll be in the next issue of the Arizona Wildlife Views, and it goes into all the detail but, about but, why but, it's cows. Okay, go ahead. Hit me with it. T- talk me into it. Because I'm not going to switch, but talk me into it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and that's the issue. Oh, I didn't tell the good part of the sticker. The good part of the sticker says, it says, Coos Whitetail Deer. No, it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> it says, Coos Whitetail Deer. Butcher the deer, not the name. Before you go, before you talk, I'm going to point something out. You, when you write Whitetail Deer, you do white hyphen tailed. Mm-hmm. When we do books... And our books go to the final copy edit person, like the real crackpot copy editors. They always do that. They always change it to that. And I always stet it. You stet it. Meaning I always reject the correction. And I make it say whitetail. So you're wrong on a couple counts on that one sticker. <laughs> well, <laughs> six inch sticker and you've got two errors on Let it. Let me tell you something. Are you familiar with... Um, um, like uh, when it comes to English language use, there's sort of like two dictionaries, right? There's two types, descriptive Mm-mm. and prescriptive. Nope. Meaning one seeks to describe how the language is used and one seeks to advise on how to use the language. I tend to be more descriptive. Descriptive. And when I see a deer, like let's say I'm sitting there in a place that has mule deer and whitetails. And someone says, oh, shit, there's a deer. Okay. Do I say, oh, no, that's a white-tailed deer? I don't. I'll go, that's a white tail. <clears throat> I say white tail. Right. But when I write it, the, the, you know, the correct way to write it is white-tailed deer. So when you write it, it has to be, as a biologist, it has to be white-tailed deer. But in a magazine, I say white tails. Oh, you do? When I'm sitting behind binoculars, I say white tails. White tail. Talk me, t- tell me why it's cows, and I'll never bring it up for the rest of my life. But I won't, I won't switch. <laughs> That's but I'll never true. bring it up for the rest of my life. It's just pretty simple. His name was pronounced cows. How and did everybody you know? in did his he family. tell you his name? <clears throat> he did actually. Oh. Yes, yes. Jeez. So in, in the late eighteen, <laughs> was, was he levitating? <laughs> he was. He, he wrote a book called um, "Cows Checklists of Birds in North America," and one of those birds has a subspecies name that's cows. 
named after him. And he has a footnote that says, here's how my family name is pronounced, C-O-W-Z. So he, in his own words, in his own publication, tells everybody how to pronounce his name. So there's really no, there's no question how it's supposed to be pronounced. There's a big question on how people choose to pronounce it. And they can choose to pronounce it any way they want, but they should recognize what's correct and what isn't. I don't know how you come back from that. Yeah, that's hard. <laughs> you come back to it like this. I mean, Elliot, like, <laughs> come back like you come back with a sentence like this. Me and Ross are going coos deer hunting this January. <laughs> Fact. <laughs> that reminds me of the white tailed versus white tail. Reminds me of one. Damn. So if your car doesn't start in the morning, are you someone that says, "My damn car didn't start," or "My damned car mm. didn't start"? My I've had this debate with several people. I fall into the latter. You'll it, actually it was go with the, you'll put the D on there. It was damned. That's why it didn't start. Oh, I don't know. That. Mm. I'm going to switch. I will mm. switch that. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. All right. I like that one. There I go. <laughs> Spencer, hit us with your quick little fact, or not little, your little factoid, your little punt gun factoid what I, that I don't believe. Oh, but I, I kind of think uh, I don't think Sean and I came to an agreement because I can't find anything definitive. The only thing I can find is on, you're not going to accept this, Wikipedia. No, 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 no. Listen, man. Uh-huh. No, listen, I'm not, I'm not, when you're, if you're at a, like an actual, if you're writing for, a, a, a when you go through the fact check process at a mm-hmm. magazine, they won't accept Wikipedia. Right. But is there a, is there a footnote like source at the bottom of that? Uh, yeah, but then I can't find anything within that source that backs up what they mm-hmm. say. Spencer's trying to tell me that in 1860, they had already banned the punt gun. I feel like it was a rolling ban. That like some states were outlawing it, and then at one point it's like uh, everybody said no to it. Yeah. This sentence well, again, you're not going to accept it from Wikipedia. It says in the United States, the practice depleted the pre- this practice depleted stocks of wild waterfowl by the 1860s. Most states had banned the practice. The Lacey Act of 1900 banned the transport of wild game across state lines, and the practice of marking, market hunting was outlawed outlawed by a series of federal laws in 1918. I don't feel like that satisfies. Yeah, no, that doesn't satisfy me. that trivia voice, dude? (laughs) Yeah, but I'm just still not buying it because, like, I can sit here right here. There's a 1914 listing of the punt gun owners in Susquehanna Flats. There's, like, a punt gun owners association? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Punt gun enthusiasts? You know, when I was uh, researching the, the punt gun, they still have, like, wildlife officers in India that will confiscate, like, two or three a year. From people that are out killing waterfowl with them, man, I think that we should, and I'll I'll okay this right here and now. I think we got to get it. We got to start getting in on those sites where you can buy a punt gun and get a punt gun and start messing around with it out in the field. Yeah, <laughs> let's, let's do that. We, yeah, we should get a punt gun. Let's man. do that and some real cheap beat up old decoys up. Facebook Marketplace or something. See how yeah. big a spread we can hit. I was thinking clay pigeons. I don't oh, know. Yeah, that'd, that'd work. I would love to get a punt gun and start having, become like a punt gun enthusiast. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think your kids would be more into the fire or the punt gun? Oh, if we got a big ditch fire going. Mm-hmm. And then and then I said, <laughs> now, now we're going <laughs> to shoot the yeah. punt gun down into the fire. Yeah, we don't have to choose. <laughs> Uh, they would like, great. yeah, they would be very into that. I want in on this. This sounds awesome. <laughs> Ross, Ross, be shoving my kids out of the way. Heisman. <laughs> yeah, we can, we can uh, get this punk gun like an LLC, get about 20 of us, right? And everyone pitches in 
mm. couple hundred bucks, and we got a punt gun all of a sudden. No, I just think that we'll. I think that that our company will just buy the punt gun. There you go. That's good. So can you start bidding on punt guns for us? <laughs> I will. I will do some real research because I feel like you're being for real. Oh, I'm dead serious. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. I'm going to put the mic down now and start typing. So uh, I, I thought Steve was joking about this lazy boy you're sitting in, Spencer, for months. It turns out he wasn't. So I would say just go for it. If the punt we gun had now. a punt gun, I would become a punt gun enthusiast. Yeah, for sure. Uh, that's a great segue into um, another edition of Sean's Duck Report. Now, Sean, I got to warn you. You get to talking about sciencey stuff. Mm, yeah, you got old Heffelfinger sitting here. <laughs> That's fair. So normally, well, if someone talks about something sciency, a couple days later, I get an email from Heffelfinger <laughs> <laughs> being like, "Well, actually, so he's just going to be able to live do it." Well, and then, boom, you can bet, Doug's already uh, typing. I was going to say, "I'll be googling." I'm just Sean, Google Sean, has even, Sean has even started. <laughs> Sean has even started, and Doug's already typing shit in his phone. Well, I actually wanted to talk about two different waterfowl things because one is like a constant email thing we get or, you know, messages on Instagram, whatever else. Rice breast? Rice breast. First one this year. I mean, the first one that was so bad, it was unquestionably inedible during the youth duck season. (laughs) Yeah, what do you mean? I mean, inedible because it messes with you? Because it's not inedible. Listen. That's the conversation I want to have about this. Okay, it's this. If it was like a thing that was happening to me all the time, I'd get over it. Mm -hmm. Okay? I'm raising a family. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I pick my battles. Mm -hmm. The other night, we had ducks and duck hearts. uh, That's pretty impressive. What I do is I take um, bear fat or pork fat, and I simmer the duck hearts in the fat for a long time just bloop, bloop, so they don't get too bloop, chewy bloop, 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 in the bubbles then i put them on a skewer and put them on a hot grill okay mm-hmm. i make my kids eat them do they like them or do they object no they end up liking them Good. but i'm like eat that then you can have the other stuff okay okay do they know what it is steve oh yeah okay He's All like, right. it's, got a, it's got a hole in it. So, yeah, that's where his blood comes in and out. <laughs> um, but if I don't want to do, like, I don't want to do the, the the I didn't want to serve that. Mm-hmm. There's been one, we, we believe in the, like, um, everybody's got it. We don't cook special stuff. Like, everybody eats what everybody eats. There's been one time we had something made out of, of older deer's liver. And my daughter's crying about it. She didn't like it. And um, I was like, I don't care. And then my wife <laughs> takes a bite, and my wife goes, Rosie, you don't need to eat that. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it would just cause a lot of trouble if I had, because we were all looking at it, and if yeah. I served it, it would have set me back, and then like I would have lost credibility. So here's where, here's the point I bring up that I feel like doesn't ever get discussed. The only time I ever notice rice breast, personally, is if I've breasted a bird. But if you're plucking your birds... You're never looking past the skin. So you're probably uh, eating a, this, a this, lot of rice-breasted birds. This is a, You're doing a microaggression. Yeah, 100%. 100%. Let me, ta- yeah. Let me tell you something. Let me tell you something. You ever hunt youth, you ever hunt youth duck season? Yes, and I know you're not plucking them then. I, I, they're, they're, they got all the pin feathers. They got all of the pin course, feathers. Of course. And there's no fat, and the skin's too thin. My entire point is that the 
the discussion around the messages I get around like, should I eat a rice breasted bird? Mm -hmm. It's only because can you tell people what we're talking about? No one knows. So so rice breast is uh, sarcocystis. It's pretty much cysts in the breasts of the duck that look like rice. Hence the rice breast. Is it all pus or is it um is it pus or is it little worms? They're technically a cyst created by whatever the parasite is. That's, it's not actual worms. It's hmm. just a cyst created by the parasite. Anyway. It's a minor infection. Basically, oh, and right? it looks, I mean, it looks ridiculous. It gets, yeah, ext- it's gnarly. And for whatever reason, it seems like birds you shoot early in the year, you know, shovelers off the local shit ponds tend to be like the duck you find with it. They at look like maggots feels at like, first. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah it's not pleasant to look at at all. If I gave, if, if, uh, if I gave you a Pepsi challenge of the most rice-breasted duck on the planet mm. in a non, do you feel that you'd be able to pick out the rice breast? Oh, no, I don't, like, I don't know. You've been eating them? I've never not eaten them. So I that would be them. yes. Why, yeah. Like, why yeah, the weird, the double negative maybe, well, yeah, like, because, dubious. Because, like, it's a, I've for never, me, it's a, it's, never, well, it's, it's a point for me is, like, that I'm sure I've eaten dozens of rice breast birds when they're plucked. Yeah, but you So why not eat them when they're breasted? Because I feel like... Let me ask you a yes-no question. I turn them into tacos so you don't have to look at it. Have you ever found one so bad that you discarded it? I probably have when I was younger. Okay. Not any time recently. Got you. So your, your hypothesis is be, because you know probability-wise, you've probably ingested this several times without knowing it, and nothing bad Mm. ostensibly happened to you that is perfectly fine. I mean, it's, it's like unanimous that it's doesn't affect you, doesn't hurt humans in any way. It's just gross to look at. When you cook it, like, let's just say you smoke a sarcocystic duck breast, Mm. or you you know, grill it or you like, can you actually look at the cooked meat and see that there is a difference? And a is there a textural difference when you're eating You definitely it? see it, but I haven't noticed it like texture wise. But I've, you have a picture here that. That's an extreme case. That's an extreme case. That's what I, I had this. That's what we had this youth this season. Mm. One duck had it. Really? Now, Callahan mentioned to me that. He mentioned to me something to the effect of, I'm not surprised because it's been such a warm fall. Does that make any sense to you? I have no clue. I don't know enough about it. Yeah, I don't what either. What do you think, Jim? I don't either. I've never, I've never heard that relationship. Hmm. Well, give it, go, go on. Are you, is that all you're going to say about that? that gonna, that's all I wanted to talk about with that was just raise that point. That, that nothing's going to happen to you. Yeah. It's just, un, it's mm-hmm. unsightly, but there's no thing that says you're going to wind up with a deadly parasite. No. Nope. Yeah, jackrabbits in southern Arizona have have tapeworm larvae, and that it's not the kind of tapeworm that can affect humans. So, y- you can technically, as long as you cook it good, you can eat it. And and we do. If there's a few tapeworms here and there, we still keep all the meat. But sometimes you get one that's just loaded, mm. and th- and that one we let the coyotes have. Yeah, yeah. Do you know? Um, I have a new doctor, the world's greatest doctor. Okay. Her name's Katie. Mm-hmm. Yanni's doctor too. I just oh, found out. I'll, yeah, she's so tight lipped. She is? She's so tight-lipped. She didn't tell me she was Yanni's doctor. 
<laughs> well, I don't. I think there's some laws. Yeah, she about can. that. Yeah, well, she sticks to them. <laughs> <laughs> I found out from Yanni was his doctor because I'm down there breaking a thing. I'm down there telling her about me and Yanni and the trichinosis situation, mm. and she's not like, oh yeah, that's my patient. And he told me that too. She played totally dumb. But then I was talking to Yanni, and he's like, that's my doctor. I told her about that. So that's impressive. Anyways, she's getting this whole thing rolling. To she's helping us pursue this biopsy, oh, in state, gonna, mm. in okay. state, mm. to get the deep See muscle you, yeah. biopsy in our biceps to find those little larvas in there. I have some more info for you about that. Well, well I need to connect you with my uh, doctor. She'll probably play <laughs> dumb with you. Yeah, because she is probably my doctor too. <laughs> is the is it a um. Is her last initial in the second half of the alphabet? <laughs> Steve, I'm pretty sure yes. you can say her name. Do it again. Oh, that's your doctor? Mm-hmm. Yeah, world's greatest doctor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, go on, Sean. Okay, so the like the waterfowl topic I wanted to really talk about today was is specific to this year which is the crazy weather we've been having and how it affects waterfowl. Specifically, like, um, two things. One being the drought that's been pervasive across the country, especially the West, Um, and two, just how mild it's been. But first and foremost was last winter, well, last fall, winter, and into the spring was about as dry as you could ever ask for in the Dakotas and Saskatchewan, which is where most the continent's waterfowl nest, um, prairie pothole region. North Dakota was down 80% on their pond counts in May. Are you serious? Yeah. 67% below the long-term average, which you can only imagine how many fewer ducks that leads to. You've got to be kidding me, man. 80% pond count down. Pond count meaning someone counting yes. baby ducks. Like no, no so um, sorry, not the actual counting of ducks, but the physical ponds, like spots oh. for them to nest on. An eighty percent reduction in like yeah. So if there was a hundred pond ponds surface. last year, now there's twenty or whatever. No shit. Yeah. Really. Mm-hmm. So we don't know that that will correlate. I mean, we do. Obvious, obviously, it's not good, but you don't know that that means necessarily an 80% reduction in ducks because there right. could be some buffering of some yeah. sort in there. But we know it. I mean, we know there's good. the relationship of that it hurts the duck population. Sure, yeah. In addition to that, which um, luckily we have like long-term harvest data and it, like adaptive management, but we also like don't, we didn't have counts from Canada because of COVID. So we're kind of a little blind right now on like what the duck, duck population might be with this drought to go like a little more into how severe the drought was Bismarck, North Dakota recorded their third driest year on record only preceded by dust bowl years, which I mean, that's, that's pretty extreme. Well, anyway, what all this comes back to is like, we know just based on the pond counts and the, the water situation that we have less ducks going into fall this year. We don't know exactly what that number looks like because we didn't get a waterfowl count, but we had less ducks going into the fall. Yep. And then in addition to that, we have like undeniable warming. We have just so much warmer falls. 
Last fall, November 2020, was the warmest November on record ever. Um, this November was the seventh warmest November on record in the United States. And it was also like the eighth driest. 2020 was the average war, like averaged out to be the warmest November, warmest on, November record. on record. Yeah. And so what this like, ev- what this eventually leads to is just this later shift in the waterfowl migration and you have, and there's several factors that I'll discuss as I like keep coming on because there's, it's a very complicated issue. It's beyond just weather. It's beyond just drought. It has to do with agriculture. It has to do with urbanization. Like there's so many factors, but one of them that this year is so undeniable is like the weather, the climate has changed and the ducks are moving south later. And there's a lot of frustrated people so far this season, for sure. It's been a hard duck season for a lot of people. You pointed out that Minnesota just had their um, first recorded December tornado. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, talking about tornadoes in Minnesota, what was December 15th-ish? Yeah. Wild. Hmm. Yeah, I was in South Texas last week for my son's graduation. He got his PhD in wildlife. We went down there to see him. <clears throat> walk, shout out to Levi, 90 degrees for the commencement, <laughs> December 10th. And it just like leaves water, you know, the waterfowl hunters in the north, like the the data shows that their duck hunting success doesn't necessarily get affected by weather changes because inevitably like hunters in North Dakota, South Dakota, Minnesota, Wisconsin, they already have the birds. The birds are nesting there. Or like they're the birds never don't come that far south. They always yeah. at least get that far. But um, there's quite a bit of data and and like uh, correlation of the the lower the pond counts and the warmer the year. Like just obviously, it, I mean anecdotally, but also scientifically, it makes sense. The South struggles; they don't kill as many ducks. Didn't you last, wasn't last year one of the highest, um, I guess I would call it pond counts, but there was a lot of water in the Dakotas? As two years ago. Two and years we're ago. going through some just wild fluctuations Swings, right now. Yeah. Yeah. Flood, drought, flood, drought. And it's, because it was only, I would, I would say it was probably four or five years ago, we were at the highest duck count ever. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. And then now we're on a real slide. Highest duck count or highest pond highest count? Highest duck count. Oh, just five years The ago. reason we don't have duck counts the last two years is is COVID. Hey, can I put in a, requ- in a request mm-hmm. for the next for Sean's yeah. for the next Sean's duck report? Or whenever, sometime in the future. Yep. Can you do a duck report on age demographics? Oh, of duck hunters? Or no, of no, no, ducks? No, no, no. I don't care about that. <laughs> of the ducks? Ducks, man. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Age demographic of ducks. Old ass ducks. We shot a duck, or not a duck, sorry, but you can throw this into it. A water, like age demographics on waterfowl. Okay. Uh, did you hear about when we called in a sandhill? We had a sandhill crane that mm-hmm. had, was banded 17 years prior in Fairbanks, Alaska. We killed it in Texas. Yeah, that's so crazy. It's Am I exaggerating? I think no, it was. No, 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 no. That's not exaggerating. I at think all. it was 17. Mm-hmm. When I was guiding snow goose hunts, we had an 18 year old snow goose that was banded as an adult. Yeah, this was banded as an mm-hmm. adult. And I, you know, it's funny. I had been to where it was banded. Really? Yeah. I like when that happens. Yeah. We, uh, 
we shot a duck in Oklahoma that was banded where I live in South Dakota. <laughs> what <laughs> Went a... to Oklahoma to kill a duck that was where we it were was from. Back home. Mm-hmm. Uh, any harvest data coming in on ducks from this year? Is it a low duck? Is it a low duck year? Is it a good duck year? It's it's a bad duck year. I mean, I haven't seen any actual harvest data, but I can't imagine it's going to be good. Was five years ago a good duck year? Yeah, we're on a we're just in general on a downhill trend of like overall hunter success anyway, and that's kind of what I want to uh, discuss in future duck reports is all the different factors that are affecting that really Mm -hmm. Um, because it's not just as simple as like there's less ducks and it's too warm it's it gets way more complicated than that when you start talking about like crop distribution and even stuff like um power plants and industrial plants and urbanization like all that is affecting but i'll I can't get all into it. <laughs> we'll be here for hours. Yeah. But there's there's a lot of factors leading to le- lower hunter success. On ducks. Mm-hmm. But then you look at like sandhill cranes, snow geese, geese. Yeah, like speckle bellies are booming right now. Speckle bellies are, I think, anecdotally, I think 20 years from now, we'll be looking at speckle bellies the same way we look at snow geese now of like just unbelievable population growth. Yeah. But ducks are not in the same, not in the same ballpark at all. Huh. And it really comes back to that prairie pothole region. Uh, I mean, that is it. It's up to 70% of the continent's nesting ducks. So if the Dakotas and Saskatchewan are in a drought, you just don't have ducks. Got it. Mm Mm-hmm. I feel like a lot of folks will listen to what Sean just said and be like, I fucking told you this year sucks. <laughs> uh, yeah. It's not us. Mm-hmm. It's the ducks. There's a, like, there's a certain element to it for sure that, like, it's just, um, it's cyclical, just like any population of animals. And ducks are probably even more so than a lot of animals. Mm-hmm. You can't change what the jet stream is doing or, you yeah. know, what rain does or what snow does. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's an interesting point because I feel like with big game animals, we have a tendency to blame it on our own behavior to some degree. No, we you don't. Know, predator management. Wolves. No. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and Wolves agencies. in the DNR. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> and with waterfowl, it's more of this mystique of like, I don't get it, but I'm not seeing as many ducks. I don't know if it's me. I don't know if it's the blind I'm hunting in. I don't know if it's, you know, my buddy's calling, but mm-hmm. <laughs> it ain't happening this year and we can't blame it on ourselves as easily. So it becomes less, yeah, I don't know, less clear. Well, and I think, um, you know, we could end up with a snowy winter and by next spring be back into the, you know, back into the game, like have all, the, all sorts of ponds. It's, that's all it is, you yep. know. Hmm. Guys just got to deal with it, get used to it, find ways to be successful anyway. Hunt speckle bellies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, and and just like be willing to adjust the conditions and go different places or like, you know, not sit on the same pond every day expecting that like, you know, that all of a sudden the ducks are just going to appear. Like sometimes you're just going to have to go out and search for those like, some, yeah, okay, there's going to be fewer ducks, but you still got to. Just like anything, you got to go find them. Remember in the late 90s when 
everyone was, you know, all of a sudden you could hunt geese and like mm. we're out getting like bit by mosquitoes hunting geese in yeah. the late summer. Mm-hmm. Is that still going on? Yeah. South Dakota, North Dakota still have an August goose season. Because then you get like in the, in the East, like that goose flyway is kind of screwed right now. Yeah. They're, they're down to, I think one a day. In but the then Atlantic like golf flyway. course, golf course geese in the Midwest. What's the difference between those two things? Like you could do that now or you could make that a Sean. That's, that's a, I think that comes back to the urbanization conversation that we got to have. Like they're, they're like a winner. Yeah. Like to some level, like, well, of course, Canada geese have won with urbanization, but Got also it. somewhat mallards, right? Maybe not population wide, but like mallards have definitely adapted to urbanization way better than any other duck. Friends of mine in Fairbanks were saying that they've got mallards on the university, on the campus, mm-hmm. in Anchorage and Fairbanks. They got mallards that have found a way to overwinter. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> and he said they just get fat and lazy and overwinter in these sort of like populated areas mm-hmm. with bubblers and stuff, yep. you know? And he said, and then these ducks show up in the spring, migrators, and it's some like haggard male that's been like <laughs> starving to death flying yep. back home. And he said those big fat ones just come up and be like, I'll take it. I'll take her from here, boys. <laughs> like that has been biding their time, you know? Yeah. This is, this is definitely uh, like put a tab on this because we're going to keep talking about this. There's, there's some interesting studies and just conversations around the urbanization stuff. So we'll cover that another time for sure. Got it. Okay, Ross, you ready? Let's do it. I think so, yeah. So you run the program at First Light. You're a duck enthusiast. Yeah, I appreciate that. Earlier I was saying that Ross is a big-time duck hunter, and Ross contested to say he's a long-time duck hunter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, at one point, uh, Steve and I and I think Dan had a conversation about the intersection of passion and talent and how the, sometimes there isn't said intersection. I feel like that's my case. Like, I'm a passionate waterfowler. I don't know that I'm particularly talented at it. But uh, I've been doing it a long time. Definitely probably spent more time in the duck blind than any other pursuit that I have. Uh, so spent a lot of time sitting. So, yeah, <laughs> uh, but First Light is coming out with a waterfowl line. Are you kind of like, in, the, in your head, like, yes, finally. Dude, yeah. So it's a long, long time coming. I mean, we've been talking about it, as far as I know, for at least eight years um, wow. Waterfowl has always been like the denominator in the office that we just haven't gone after. Uh, for Even though like everybody does it. More people, we always do this kind of nerdy math, but we definitely spend more time collectively waterfowling across the office than in any other individual pursuit. Mm-hmm. So it's always been there. I mean, shit, I met Cal uh, well before First Light. So back in the day, right, like when you used to go to your uh, waterfowl zone and we'd put in at the boat launch and you knew everybody there because people weren't doing it yet. And it was like a community and you knew you saw so-and-so's rig and you're like, oh, he's here and you knew where he hunted and stuff. So my buddy Robbie's out there and I motor up to him because I know what blind he's going to be in. And this was probably 2002. Um, And I, I motor up there and Robbie's sitting in the blind and he's got this kid with him with a big ass video camera. (laughs) <laughs> and he's like, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm going to make some DVDs or something. And, and this is my friend, Ryan from Montana. He's out here filming. On Cal was hundred percent. And I remember this. I can't remember like where <laughs> my keys that. are right now, but I remember Cal had, you know, like the bomber hat on. And I mean, I don't, 
know exactly how old Cal is. I don't think anybody does, but... Uh, he was, like, born with that mustache, right? <laughs> yeah, correct. Like, I think he was 12, and he had a pretty thick broom going there. Uh, no, I just remember this, and, and um, you know, I, I think I was, let's see, roughly 22, so Cal was approximately, you know, he's in high school, was my guess, or right around there. Uh, and that's how we met. Like, and then we right? didn't see each other for whatever, another eight years or something until I went to First Light. Um, and Cal was the only employee at that point. I was second employee. So there's always been this like backstory. I actually used to waterfowl with Scott, one of the founders, and Kenton, the other founder, well before I was at First Light, before First Light was around. And then we started hiring people. And the cool thing about waterfowl is as we'd hire people from whether it was Intermountain West or Maryland, Mm. waterfowl is the denominator, right? Like you're not speaking the language of whitetail versus sure, yeah. Western. Everybody waterfowl or goose hunted, duck hunted, whatever. Um, so point being, it's been in our blood for a long time. We've talked about it a long time. And yeah, to your question, I am definitely really excited to finally get there. Uh, I feel like we've been penciling it out and noodling on it for eight years and we finally get to bring it to the table. So pretty excited. Tell people right now what typha means. Oh boy. That's going to be one of them ones where people are like, what? Yeah. Typha is a a great word. Yeah. It's the genus that, uh, like cattail belongs to. Hmm. So all of that sort of marshy, uh, foliage falls under that sort of cattle or under that, uh, category or genus, I guess. Yeah. You buy that that, Mm -hmm. Yeah. To to clarify, like Jim buys it. Yeah, it saved me an email there. It's true too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Doug's, Doug's app has phone his, his, right his app has it going. Bing. Yeah, bullshit, bullshit. Yeah. Um, well, to clarify, Typha's the name of our new waterfowl pattern. Oh yeah, yeah. I was, yeah, I was getting there. Did okay. I leave that out? Yeah. yeah. Well, oh. it's all right. Yeah, it's yeah. a valid question. Uh, but yeah, it kind of encompasses that full marshy atmosphere that we developed this pattern to use specifically for. But yeah, so. Besides it being in our DNA, the other thing that we were looking at for the last eight years, we're like, man, what a lot of people don't know unless they happen to have tried it is that, you know, our our uh, foundation for our system is Merino. Merino for waterfowling is the best goddamn thing to ever happen it's to amazing. anyone. I mean, when you drop your motion decoy wing into the water and you got to go shoulder deep in there and you pull your arm out and you have the property of Merino that's warm and wet and... Then you go home and maybe, you know, you're hanging out and you forget to dry it. The fact that Merino doesn't stink, it just all comes together. And then it's it's insulated properties and all that. So that was kind of a no-brainer. And then we've spent the last several years developing specific fabric packages for waterfowl. um, And then really dorking out on a lot of the features that would make our product um, smarter and more usable and more friendly. So that you'd use it and you'd be like, man, I can't believe nobody's thought about this feature before now. Mm-hmm. Which, to be fair and to be transparent, I feel like waterfowl has long been a forgotten category, in particularly in apparel. I could say that probably across the board relative to, let's say, Western big game. I mean, you've seen so much innovation in there over the last 20 years. And for a variety of reasons, a lot of it was driven from mountaineering technology that people would bother borrow and then apply to yeah that's a good point man yeah, yeah. And, and you saw that and you they, saw they, they always had like mountain hunting gear always had something to chase yeah which was exactly which was mountaineers exactly right <laughs> mm-hmm. and it was very easy for folks to say hey that's working really well in mountaineering let's apply that to hunting figure yeah. out how to put a pattern on it you know all that sort of stuff but for whatever reason probably by virtue of you know honestly waterfowl is a smaller market i think it was neglected for a really long time 
When, in fact, it's one of the most, like, from a durability standpoint, it's certainly one of the most demanding pursuits that we take place in. I mean, people view waiters, let's be honest, as disposable. Like, if, if you can get, if you're a, mm-hmm. if you're a hardcore waterfowler and you can get a year out of one without having to warranty it or repair it, you're pretty psyched. Yep. You just don't expect, waterfowls don't expect things to last. And we looked at that as, you know, like, I don't know, the market was, the manufacturers are neglecting that market. And we wanted to make stuff that was like, Brick shithouse tough, mm-hmm. smart, and using the same level of innovation that we've seen in Western Big Game and Whitetail over the last, you know, 10 to 20 years. And you got to stay dry. Yes. Like, you yeah. know, that's such, it's, yeah. it seems so simple, but to have something that's light enough to functionally wear yeah. and not too bulky and thick to where you can actually still shoulder a shotgun and be functional while also like, you got to be dry. When would I, when, when does your average mug be able to go out and be like, oh, I can buy it? Well, the product will come to, we'll get inventory of it next summer in probably like June, July type time. And, and that's when we'll have it available for purchase. In the meantime, uh, we're going to start rolling stuff out, some previews and, and showing what the individual product looks like uh, between now and then and really get into you know, all the stuff that we think makes it um, the best waterfowling product in the market. I don't want to, I don't want to mess your story up, but you also are stumbling upon the greatest ice fishing line of apparel. You're right. Mm. And you did point that out <laughs> not too long ago. I'm not going to lie to you. Like, we dude, didn't design that these, with the I was line? like, what do you, what you ought to be calling these is, uh, you know, <laughs> ice fishing. Yeah. Done. Another well, neglected market. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. I mean, I when say, you, oh, go ahead. Well, I was going to say that like on the pattern front, that's probably the thing I'm, like I was most excited about when I first got to start screwing around with this stuff was that over and over the problem I've had with products for, for years is too dark. Like when you're out in the marsh and you look at guys from a distance, you typically notice they're a black blob. Mm. Like they are darker than like you don't realize how light that fall dried. Right. Exactly. Cattail and other vegetation is. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you, that's a thing in waterfowl hunting is like cover up any black holes, right? And you're blind, like you want grass hanging over the top to cover that like black hole in the blind or even on a boat, like you don't want a dark motor on the back showing. So you go put a motor cover on it. Like that dark black blob, whether in a field or in a marsh is like always a problem. And it's always what the birds pick out. And usually camo is just too dark, and at least for the marsh environment, for a cornfield environment. Got it. Because everyone's always trying to create a pattern or a camo that like can ride the line, right? Of like, oh, you can wear this in the timber of Arkansas or the buckbrush in Missouri or then a cornfield in South Dakota. It's like, well, those are very different. Yeah, I'm <laughs> Those are you. very different environments. And Typha is light. It's like a light color. Some people would, um, like maybe in the South, might think it's too dark in their environment, and they might be right. But as far as like if you hunt anything grassy, anything marshy, anything agriculture at all, like it looks so good. And it's an area where it's just not a debatable point. Like it's indisputably benefit camel, like the right camel is indisputably beneficial when you're hunting ducks. That's like they see shit. If there's anything I noticed this year, like me and Giannis were on a hunt in Nebraska and I was, he was kind of like 
on the edge of the cattails, a little tucked in, but they were like pretty light, thin cattails. And I was out picking up a bird, looking back at him 80 yards. And I was like tickled pink that he was just not, he was not dark. He was the same, you know, Got wasn't it. all blacked out. I'm happy to hear that because over the last handful of years, we probably went through 15 iterations and it kept getting lighter and lighter. Hmm. You know, we'd have people, folks like Sean, and we'd have guides and all this stuff, and we'd secretly show it to them, and they're like, lighter, lighter, lighter. And it landed where it did with that recognition that I think people have a tendency, to Sean's point, to try and find a happy medium. And with waterfowl, that doesn't work. I mean, you've got to be pretty specific. I think out of all of our pursuits, arguably, waterfowl and turkey are probably the most discriminate. And so mm-hmm. we really tried to make something that was uh, intentionally specific to this environment as opposed to something that could operate in a multitude of, of environments. Gotcha. All right. So this has you titillated, uh, go to the slash waterfowl and sign up and you stay abreast of uh, all things waterfowl related at meat eater. Again, meateater.com slash waterfowl. Hey, man, it's a struggle to find time to manage one's finances. It's a struggle to find time to manage my finances. You go through like a busy week, and the last thing you want to do is spend time budgeting, you know, your expenses and tracking down customer service teams to cancel old subscriptions you're paying for that you don't use. But now you use Rocket Money and does all of that for me. I'll tell you, this this happens all the time in our family because, like, something will come out that we want to watch, and they lure you in with a one-month trial, and you're like, oh, you know, I'll do the one-month trial, then I'll come back and cancel, then I can watch this whole thing. And then, like, you don't. You forget about it, and then, and then a year goes by, and you've been paying these guys 12 bucks all year and never watched a single thing. This finds that stuff and gets rid of it for you. Rocket Money is a personal finance app. It goes in and finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions. It helps lower your bills so you can grow your savings instead. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. That's rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. Again, rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. Spring is a great time to do something with your family. Do some spring cleaning, which I kind of started today outside, planning outdoor activities, which I'm always doing, taking a little trip to Hawaii with your kids for spring break, which I just did, which was great. You know what else you can do for your family this spring? You can shop for life insurance with Policy Genius. Make that part of your financial planning for the year. I've said it before a thousand times. I'll say it again. When my wife and I, when we started having kids, we got serious about life insurance. And man, I felt so much better after we did. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just 292 bucks per year for a million dollars of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. Even if you already have a life insurance policy through work, it may not offer enough protection for your family's needs, and it may not follow you if you leave your job. So save time and money and provide your family with a financial safety net using Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. 
Applying for tags each year in the West can be daunting. Yeah, I apply for everything everywhere. It's daunting. You have to go to a variety of sources to formulate your best guess as to where to apply. Well, this is a thing of the past now. Onyx just launched hunt research tools to simplify the process for all hunters. This tool helps organize the data that matters, makes comparing hunt options easy, and helps hunters develop a plan based on real metrics rather than gut feelings. Onyx Hunt also offers all elite members a free digital membership to Hunt and Fool, who I use, for boots on the ground, insight and knowledge, and a membership to Hunt Reminder so you never miss another deadline. Stop stressing over application season and apply with confidence in 2024. Check out OnX Hunt Research Tools, free for all OnX Hunt Elite members. Not an elite member? Well, let's fix that. Use code MEATEATER to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com slash hunt. This is an app I use literally every day. I use it for every aspect of hunting, scouting, trapping, you name it. Uh, here's the thing Corinne and I were fixing to talk about, but we're gonna, I'm just going to do it real quick. Mm-hmm. The spring bear hunt in Washington, we've covered this. Everybody in the planet is talking about this. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, no, everyone. Ah, I mean, <laughs> North Korea is kind of a black people. hole, dude. Like, I don't really know coming out what's coming out of North Korea on this, but most people in the world are talking about this. Mm-hmm. Washington, their their spring black bear season sort of like on hold. And it came down to this commission boat. And what, you know when you think of a fish and game commission, you think of a fish and game commission as being like people who are like predisposed to be supportive of hunting and supportive of use of natural responsible use of natural resources washington ain't okay it's like they've got their governor and you know i don't know they've had a lot of like very very left-wing governors for a very long time that have have packed the commission full of people who not only are antagonistic they got people on the commission not only antagonistic to hunting but like outspoken criticisms of the North American model of wildlife conservation. Mm. I mean, they had a freaking zookeeper on there who just resigned like a zoo. Like when I think of a fish and game commissioner, the last thing that pops in my mind is a zookeeper. He's like, well, what we like to do is we keep them in a little cage, put them in a cage, right? Uh, That way nothing bad can happen to them. Um, This guy uh, resigned, but here's what happened in Washington. I'm trying to do this as quickly as possible. They're supposed to have nine commissioners, like the Supreme Court. Why do you have nine Supreme Court justices? Yeah. So in case they nine. don't agree. Yeah, right. They all vote, and then it just so happens that you're going to have, like, uh, the right way. They got eight. The, I don't know. The governor won't appoint the ninth one. The, the ninth one's supposed to come from the east part of the state. People in the east part of the eastern part of Washington tend to be hunt fish friendly, mm-hmm. right? More culturally yeah. like that. People from the west part of the state tend to tend to be, I'm speaking g- tremendous generalizations here. There's a greater likelihood they're going to be antagonistic to, like hunting and yep. fishing. The right? the, uh, the the Cascade Mountain Range kind of is yeah. split there. Uh, they haven't gotten their commissioners, so they got these eight people. They get the, it comes to a vote whether to have the spring bear season, and it falls a four to four vote. And instead of it being a tie, and that means the bear hunt goes on for whatever reason, it's a tie, but the bear hunt doesn't go on. Another commissioner resigns. He resigns because. He, he's like in the commissioner doghouse somehow, the zookeeper. Um, 
he uh so now they got seven now they got seven commissioners they got to get all the commissioners appointed and then they got to rehash this thing out the tricky part is the fish and game agency when the biologists from the fish and game agency come forward they're like bears are doing great in washington um very strong population we recommend having the limited draw bear hunt as usual. That was their recommendation from a biological perspective. And some of these commissioners are like, it's social, not biological. There's like a social antagonism to this. Yeah. And that's the argument. They're not even debating anymore like whether it's a sustainable resource. Right. Uh, oddly, no, I shouldn't say odd. Fortuitously, there's a thing where you can let the, the, where they like invite input. Washington's Fish and Game Commission invites input. You're not being like a weird internet troll. Like they invite input. There's a thing called contact the Fish and Wildlife Commission. Go to my Instagram, scroll back to December 20, and you'll see a picture of me doing a grip and grin with a bear. In there, there's like a link, and it's a link to how you give the old what for to the commission. It's a fill, it's a form you fill out. And they're like sensitive. They, they look at the form. They're sensitive. They want to hear from people. So if you like live, particularly if you live in Washington, if you hunt Washington, um, let them know how you're feeling about this. They got a form for you. So like going to like my like bio, go to like at Steven Ranella, scroll back to you see a dead bear, go to the link in bio and then fill out a thing, letting the commission know where your head's at on the bear hunt. Think about all that, Doug. I think that um, it's interesting that we have sort of the opposite, um, at least politically, situation in Wisconsin and that we have a natural resources board that's also appointed by the governor. But we have one of the um, board members whose term ended in April of last year who has refused to leave the board until the Senate confirms his replacement, which, of course, the governor put in, uh, nominated right away. <clears throat> and it's a uh, – he was appointed by our previous governor, who happened to be a Republican, and our current governor is a Democrat, and our Senate is controlled by the Republicans. So they're just – essentially, this guy says, well, I'm not leaving the the board until hmm. there's a – until the new nominee is – uh, confirmed, but then and, they won't confirm them, and they won't confirm them. So we have this <laughs> squatter. <laughs> uh, it, it's, squatter. I mean, and it has has a huge effect. Do you think these guys are all talking together to make a plan? Oh, without a doubt, without a doubt. Um, Durkin has written about it extensively, um, and it is affecting um, well our wolf management. Um, it's affecting our deer management. Um, and it's just to me, it's it, in both of these cases, it's uh, it's unsettling that politics are playing such a heavy role in how our natural resources are managed. You're talking about the North American model of conservation, science-based management um, in Wisconsin um, is also being uh, ignored, but it's being ignored by the other side because there's a contingent who wants to have you know, early, let's have wolf, wolf hunts early and often. And the DNR is saying a different uh, thing about wolves. Not that we shouldn't have a wolf hunt, not that we shouldn't be managing or anything like that. But um, 
but but that we we need to to have a, a better plan and and you know this uh, a law was passed again by the legislature and signed by the previous governor that says if there's a if wolf hunting is allowed we need to have a wolf hunt during this period of time so last year we rushed one and I think you guys talked about the shit show that our wolf hunt became and it was because of this rushing um, forward um, I don't have the answer for it I don't I, I'm I'm not in wolf country and I, I don't apply for a wolf tag just because it's not something that I'm um, uh, particularly interested in uh, hunting. But I certainly agree that they should be hunted um, and managed, but how that's done is so important. And um, I'm running, quite honestly, as we talk about chronic wasting disease and, and deer management, we run into the same thing there. So it's interesting that we have the same problem in two states, but they seem to be coming from different political Standpoints. Yeah. Well, that's what that's why I, that's why I'm a proponent of creating a third political party. Uh, well, I'm with you. When are when are we going to do that? <laughs> <laughs> right <Uh-oh>. now, <laughs> that's happening. Yeah. yeah, I think it's just I think we just rehashed Roosevelt's uh, bull moose party. I like it. I like it a lot. That's <sighs> a good idea. Halfelfinger, take this one on for me, Jim. Which is that? I just call you Heffelfinger people know what I'm talking about because you have an unusual last name. That's true. But Jim Heffelfinger, take this one on for me. Uh, the theory that, this is a fan favorite, rattlesnakes don't rattle anymore because people killed all the ones that rattle. Yeah, that's a, that's a common thing. People see you hear that? General, no, no. You never heard yeah. that? I mean, I've heard that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you've heard yeah, the theory. Yeah, okay. I've yeah. heard it, yeah. Yeah. I don't spend a lot of time thinking about it. But- Cal, Cal, float, Cal floated this one, right? Yeah. <clears throat> mm-hmm. Yep. It was inspired by his dog and yeah. like about killed by a rattlesnake. Right. They bit it at the base of the ear. I actually had, I got a brand new little yellow lab puppy and we had a run in with a venomous creature. About two days after she was home as an eight week old puppy, she was mouthing something. <clears throat> and I came out and I said, what's drop it? What do you got there? And she flicks off of her tongue, a black widow, a big black widow spider huh. plops out on the ground. And it wasn't moving, but it was fresh. She had picked it up and killed it. Did it and get her? No. We washed her, and somehow she did not get bit. So <laughs> Yellow Lab seemed to have a propensity to get into venomous creatures. But but we did talk about the—you talked about the, the snake selection thing about killing, rattling rattlesnakes. But we can just recap it. Basically, in order for something like that, you're talking about forcing evolution, kind of an artificial evolution, where you select these animals that— have a higher propensity to rattle, animals that are quick to rattle, a little more sensitive to rattle. And so you, first of all, have to have snakes, have to have that being genetically programmed. So you have to have some snakes that they get this gene from their parents that they're a little more sensitive to rattle. You have to have that kind of genetic connection or you can't make any kind of genetic changes by selecting some or not selecting others. And so we don't really know whether there's some genetic sensitivity to rattle gene or not. But even if we assume there is, then you've got to have people out there affecting a, a majority of the population, taking a high proportion, a disproportionate number of these animals that are, that are more sensitive to rattle when something comes near them. So you've got to have the selection to select those out disproportionately. And you've got over the top of this, you've got all of these other environmental factors that have something to do, have a lot to do with whether rattlesnake rattles or not. 
you know, what's the ambient temperature? If it's really cold, they're probably not going to rattle. If it's, if it's really warm, they'll be a little quicker to rattle. Maybe how, how close you got to them, how big and imposing you look. Maybe this rattlesnake got almost stepped on by a cow three times in the week and he's just pissed off because here's someone else walking at him. Mm-hmm. You know, what's your trajectory towards him? Whether he feels like he's well hidden. All of that stuff has a lot to do with how threatened the snake feels and whether it's going to rattle or not. And some idea that it, it has some genetic component from its parents about whether it's sensitive to rattle or not. Um, just doesn't make a lot of sense. There's too many other environmental factors that are coming into play for any kind of wide-scale selection to actually change how quickly rattlesnakes rattle in the wild. One thing you pointed out, too, and I think I mentioned this, is um, when you look at people who do large-scale rattlesnake killing, they're not walking around listening for rattles. Yeah, they're not walking around and then some really sensitive rattlesnake rattles and then they go kill that. So that's what you would need for that kind of selection. They're going in and, and going into dens and they're, they're doing all kinds of other sometimes destructive things to get rattlesnakes out. But it has nothing to do with how sensitive that snake is to rattle or not. So you can't, you can't exert that kind of selection even in those really intensive rattlesnake roundup kind of situations. So next time someone says that to you, say, shut up. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I should have just said to Cal. As a public biologist, that's generally what I use on the (laughs) phone. All right, we're going to hit a bunch of, uh, we're going to get a bunch of deer stuff with with, with Jim and Doug. And I'll point out that, you know, Jim's from Arizona, Doug's from Wisconsin, um, but they both are like very on top of the, the deer situation. So there's, these two aren't like uh, coming from, they're not like, they don't work together, different necks of the woods, all that kind of stuff. But in my mind, I was bracket, I wanted them to come on together because they're the people that I email with the most about deer and often quite different things about deer, but we're going to cover a little ground. Who wants to, oh, let, let me hit you with this one because we're going to talk about COVID real. I don't want to spend a ton of time on COVID and deer. All this stuff about, I want to get your opinion on it. Oh, I have one. A lot of stuff about deer and COVID. <laughs> oh, my. It, it, to me, it just seems like such a, I don't know. Okay. How much, on a sliding scale of 1 to 10, each of you, Jim and Doug, on a sliding scale of 1 to 10, how much do you agree with this statement? The deer COVID thing, this is me talking, the deer COVID thing is a non-issue. What is 10? What is 1 and 10 on the scale? 1 is um, strong disagreement. 10 is strong agreement. I would probably fall in the 7. Hmm. Doug? I'm confused as to what the scale is again. <laughs> yeah, I think that was a you double strongly, negative. Okay. Because <laughs> I'm guessing Jim and I agree about this. I say the COVID deer thing, I feel like the COVID deer thing is a non-issue. Strongly disagree is a one. Strongly agree is a ten. Is that what you, the way you went on? Yeah, it? I went. I went closer to ten. I mostly agree with that. You I went think to seven. I think it's something that's just being that's being blown out because it's kind of a popular thing that gets a lot of clicks, clickbait. But I but there is there is an element that we should not completely dismiss it. That's right. That's right. And that's yeah. So it's hard for me to put a. So I'll go with like a five because it's really? non-committal, right? Oh my god, you guys um, are like you guys are like deer COVID tweakers. So, here, here, so. and here's why, and here's why. Um, at least from what I learned, and Jim and I have some um, folks that we talk to in common about it. And it, that oh, so you is, guys have some overlap. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We know some of the same people talking to some of the same wildlife people. Yeah. Um, that it is a reservoir. And if the, one of the things that it, it, it does is that it sort of tells me that, uh, and maybe tells uh, the conclusion that I came to in talking with various people is that's, so it's there. And so COVID, um, like chronic wasting disease is something that we're going to have to, uh, live with. But, understand. It's, it's there, but I think they found it in 70 animal species. I don't know if it's that many. So, do you say seventy? I thought I was like, did I? I thought I read the other day. Boy, somebody it. Google that shit. I know. Well, Doug, <laughs> yeah, Doug's well, yeah, talking. Well, he can't talk. <laughs> well, and the, yeah. Sean, that's why find out how, how many animal species have they found COVID in? I mean, tigers, lions, minks, um, bogs. And here's my take on it. Deer. I'm going to tell you this. And I want. I'm going to preface this by saying I'm not a health professional. <laughs> I don't know if you knew that. <laughs> I just think that it's like. I hesitate to even say this because people get in all kinds of trouble for saying stuff like this. I don't think we're getting out of this one. I think it's the new norm. I think it's the new norm. So let me go on. There I A agree. A funeral director. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> there I agree. I, I do think it is. I, I think it's, uh, you know, it's another example of zoonic disease that we have to pay attention to. But, um, you know, it's sort of like um, with COVID. I mean, we were, you know, as uh, we were flushing the toilets with our feet and all this other stuff. And I mean, you just have to, after a while, it's like, okay, I want to get on with my life. Uh, thanks for the information. I will take the mm-hmm. precautions that I think are necessary. Um, I'll talk to professionals about it and make my decisions from there. But I'm getting on with my life. Yeah. Yeah. What worries, uh, what worries the wildlife health professionals is that <clears throat> make. Domestic mink caught it from their keepers, from humans. Sure. So mink caught it from humans. Um, there's evidence that the virus circulated for a couple months in the mink population, mutated a little bit like it does. And there was a human that had COVID-19 and it had one of the strains that had mutated in the mink population and it had infected the human and the human got COVID. So it's so some people are worried that with a huge reservoir like deer, it could mutate into such a form that would be no more virulent if it went back into humans. Now, there's no evidence that COVID has ever jumped from deer back into humans. And there's at no all. evidence that a deer has ever been phased by it. There's no evidence that deer has ever had. That's one thing that's important too. The virus is 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 called SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19. COVID-19 is the disease, and SARS-CoV-2 is the virus. So deer have been shown to have been exposed to the virus, and they've elevated antibodies, showing they're exposed to it. No deer has ever been documented to actually have any kind of sickness actually have the COVID-19 sickness. I feel like I'm being a little glib, so I want to I want to articulate my perspective a little bit more thoroughly. Uh I don't think we're I, I don't think we're going to defeat COVID. I don't think we're going to constrain it. I don't think we're going to limit any of the spreads of any of the variants. I think that it's going to be we're going to have new variants coming out of the human population all the time. In a couple of years, I think we're going to look at a lot of stuff we did and we'll be like, "Oh yeah, maybe we delayed something, but probably not." Or maybe we delayed something that's just the reality now and it gave us a minute to get boned up on medications and stuff. But it's circulating in a bunch of animals. It's circulating in a bunch of people across five or what, what six continents. Um, I don't think that it's like, ah, shit, now deer got it. This will never end. Like, I just, I, I, I view it's like a, I feel it's a non factor. But we got a nice letter from a funeral director. <laughs> and he was pointing out to, he's like he's like hey, hey hey if you hunt deer listen 
I've been dealing. So there's like a lot of information out there for people that are deer hunting. Now they're like, when you go, when you go to gut a deer, you got to have your latex gloves. You got to have a knife. Well, now they're like, yeah, you got to have your COVID mask. This guy wrote in and says, listen, I've been dealing with COVID deceased people. And here's what we do. And we have a hundred success rate in staying healthy. And he, he admits processing a deer is not the same as processing a human, <laughs> <laughs> but these tips could still be used. He suggests this when butchering in the field, I don't, I don't think they use that word in the funeral <laughs> when butchering in the field. When my father died, my father died late at night and um, I was the last person. I watched him take his last breath. And I remember the funeral people quickly showed up and they showed up um, in their suits and the long black wool coats. And they were there fast. Same. Yeah. Yeah. When my dad died, it was very, very similar. I was like, dang, you guys got here quick. Dressed up like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's just like laying in bed with that stuff on. Uh, <laughs> what, what was I getting at? Oh, move to it. He says, here's, the t- here's what morticians are doing around COVID deceased. When butchering in the field, move to an open area with lots of air circulation. Stand upwind of the deer. Do not compress the chest of the animal when rolling the animal over. Stand away from the head. Tape the mouth closed and plug the nostrils. Starts to paint a picture, don't it? Mm-hmm. Always wear gloves and a mask. Here's a tip. When removing the lungs, do not squeeze. Bury them once removed. After field dressing is complete, place the deer in cold, isolated storage for 48 hours before continuing on. I've had no experience consuming an animal of this state. That's good to hear. (laughs) I would consult further experts on this topic. So there you have it. From a real pro... Love it. I have Here's to, another, can I give you another? Oh, go ahead, Doug. I was just going to say, I got to thank this guy for writing this and sending this in. <laughs> because it's like, how are you going to make this shit sound interesting, man? And that does. It really does. Oh, listen, man. We got like the best audience in the world. Yeah. We get great, great photos, great feedback. The Someone other, for, oh, go ahead. The go other ahead. thing, I, thank you. The other thing I would say is, um, as a lot of folks know, I have a um, CWD testing kiosk on our farm where people drop off. But um, they got carried away by yeah. a tornado. They got, yeah, I got tipped over by the tornado last <laughs> night. December. Didn't get carried storm. away. It's only a few yards down the field, but Doug's out of town. His wife sent a picture of his upside down kiosk off. <laughs> yeah, it's like I leave and shit happens. Um, uh, and in our kiosk, um, I opened up. Uh, I have to, as I have to open up bags and make sure the paperwork's right and stuff. And several of the deer, uh, they all came from the same place. The the uh, mouths were taped shut on them. Is that right? I, and I was like, well, that's interesting. Must have been this but guy's I hadn't, place. I hadn't, I hadn't read um, that as a, a hmm. recommendation, and I didn't notice that there was anything plugging the nostrils. But they did have notes on the, like, this is Sean's buck or, you know, Joe's doe or whatever. So maybe that was why they did it. I know the guy, so I'm going to have to ask him about it. I'm only uh, mentioning this. Somehow my wife has these little snowmen. Christmas ornaments that are made out of tampons. Cool. Come on. So my boys are like, what is this? <laughs> it sounds like a Corinne art, art project. Yeah. <laughs> so my wife's like, eh. you know, my wife gives them the full, gives my boys the full rundown, you know, for like what that's all about. And then uh, either way, that'd be a great nostril plug. Oh. Perfect size, right? Creative mind. 
Steve. Maybe a little big for well, some people folks. In, I mean, people not, in combat carry those. People in combat carry tampons a lot for bullet bullet wounds. Is like that right? path, yeah. Pass through bullet wounds through an arm and they'll shove a tampon through it. Yeah, and if the pandemic ends, make uh, snowman out of them. That's like a, snowman it's a thing in wrestling. Is like wrestlers go get bloody noses and shove a tampon up their Remember nose. Remember the movie Strange Brew? He gets a bloody nose in court and the bailiff gives him a bullet to plug his nose with. <laughs> <laughs> but then someone cracks a joke and the bullet flies out and goes off. It's a good movie. Uh, here, here, a listener wrote in about this. This guy's kind of licking his lips at this whole COVID thing because he's like, man, if deer lose their sense of smell. Oh, good oh yeah. Good hunting. Mm-hmm. It's gonna We're going to reduce your gonna change the whole game, man. <laughs> going to change the whole game. That's a good point. <clears throat> All right. PFAs in deer. What the hell is a PFA? PFA, this is an emerging thing that, that I didn't know much about until I started looking into it. But they're just chemicals that don't degrade. They kind of accumulate in the environment. Forever chemicals, right? For, they that's, call them that's forever like the chemicals. That's like uh, the little, the little yep. sort of like public. I don't know. What the hell, what the hell how would I describe it? It's kind of the, the gnome du jour. That's not right. A, that's a, cutesy, a cutesy name. A cutesy it. name. Yeah. Yeah, because something you find in the media all the time because they like to pick those. But they came around the 1950s and they put them in flame retardant stuff and water um, water resistant um, chemicals, all kinds of plastics. Probably Clark Griswold's uh, non nutritive cereal varnish, <laughs> probably, <laughs> and those kind of things. But it's ubiquitous in the environment, and and now they're starting to find out that they don't degrade, and so they're they're accumulating in tissues, they're accumulating. You can detect, detect it in blood, and so. We had we had the one report in Maine this year of uh, the local municipality advising people not to eat deer from this one local specific And that area. was coming from a local municipality. Yeah, not to eat deer either. And so um, so we, uh, um, Brian Richards sent me a link from a year ago that was in Marinette, Mich- not Marinette, Michigan, Marinette, Wisconsin, right on, on mm-hmm. the side. Um, and that was a year ago, and, and they were they were advising people not to eat the livers of deer. So... They were saying that in the heart tissue and the muscle tissue, um, the levels were undetectable or very low and not a problem. Mm-hmm. But in the livers, because the, the livers and the kidneys are organs that, that filter the blood and they filter toxic, toxins out of the blood. And so it was accumulating in the liver and they're telling people not to eat the liver. So what were they seeing? Do you know, because a handful of people from Maine sent us this, 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 this warning that came out. What were they looking at? Do you know, like, what were they seeing specifically? Were they seeing, were they actually seeing, like, really elevated counts in venison? That I don't, or was I don't it more know the theoretical? Specifics. Yeah, I don't know the specifics whether they, like like a year previous in Wisconsin, where they tested heart tissue, muscle tissue, and liver tissue, and, and found that there were different levels. In the main situation, I don't know what they tested and, and, and what was sparking their concern, whether it was just in the blood or in muscles. Do you feel that, uh, oh, you got something to say, Doug? But the difference is in Maine, they're saying don't eat the meat, don't eat the deer don't at eat all. The deer. Out of a very specific zone. A very specific area. In mm-hmm. Wisconsin, it was liver and just heart. Liver. And, yeah, got and it. Just liver. Yeah. And they, actually, they specifically said don't worry about eating heart tissue and muscle tissue in Wisconsin. Oh, they did? In that. Mm-hmm. I clarified earlier that I'm not a healthcare professional. <laughs> yeah. Nor am I. I would like to clarify that too. Yeah. I would... I have a way that I assess things and I go like, would I really die from this? Like, will this be the thing I die from? And this is not to advise anyone, but I just, right. but in that situation, I'll probably be like, man, am I really going to like, is this going to be the thing that kills me eating this deer? And I'd be like, in my mind, I would be like, that's not going to do it. Yeah. Those, it's going to be heart disease <laughs> those <laughs> or lung cancer. PFAs. And I've heard them called PFAS, I don't know if that's what the cool kids use or if that's just what one person was 
using incorrectly, but they've been linked to higher cholesterol. They've been linked to uh, kidney, testicular cancer, been linked to lower birth weight changes in liver enzymes, um, high blood pressure, and, a, and a, in children, a decreased reaction to vaccinations in getting their antibody levels up. So there's some medical connections with um, having these high levels of, of that in the blood. Most of those studies, though, were done in areas that where the people had really high levels, not just kind of baseline levels. But also the CDC and some other sources say 95 to 98 percent of people in the United States have measurable PFP. PFAS out of the gate in their blood, but, just an environmental level. But if you look at this area in Maine, are they advising don't eat don't eat vegetables from vegetable gardens in this area? Are they advising, or does that not work that way? Are they advising don't eat livestock products from this area? I haven't heard that, but yeah, that's interesting. I'm not sure, but um, I know this specific area in Maine. Um, it was Fairfield was once used in a pulp paper manufacturing. Uh, and released into the Kennebec yep, River. Yep, and the the bio waste was spread on farm fields for years. So uh, I don't, I haven't seen anything else to, um, I guess, prove what this person has said. But he said that the kind of word on the street is that local dairy farms oh, are having their, I'm looking their stocks at that right now. killed as well. Wow, man! This one of the guys that wrote, and he says, "Man, their family's been hunting." Uh, he said his. For 40 years, they've been hunting a property smack dab in the middle of this zone. And if you look at a, like a county map, it's falls in Fairfield. He's wondering, is it really safe to eat? Hate to give it, yeah, I don't want to give advice, man. But, you know, I remember one time I had a garden and I just for the, I wanted to, I sent a soil sample into a unit, the local, like, uh, you know, you have the land grant universities that have like an ag extension thing. And they came back with uh, very high elevated levels of lead. In the garden soil, right? And uh, like really high. I remember it was like 13x what's high or something mm. already. And um, I pondered that for a day or two and then went on gardening. <laughs> is that from you? Is that from you shooting raccoons in the garden? You just deposited some lead in the soil? No, you know what? And I was curious how that happened. And uh, and I'd spoke to a couple people and they're saying that um. That they that the 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 thing they were looking at most there was the years of leaded gasoline. Mm -hmm. So being in a you know being in an area just close proximity to where there was a lot of a, a lot of combustion of leaded gas. Yep, and uh, that's where a lot of the falls out. Of, yeah, falls out of that exhaust and yep. in close proximity. All so you exhaust. might have an area where I don't know, man, or you like idled a tractor. You know, people were idling their tractor for seventy years outside the whatever barn. Mm -hmm. You could have like. uh from the years of leaded gas. But like I said, man, it like shook me up and I just kind of went on. The <laughs> <laughs> My knee-jerk reaction is to not worry about the PFAS, but but disease professionals will tell you if, if your municipality is issuing a, a don't eat kind of advisory, you probably would be smart to follow yeah, that. But the, the, where my road. brain goes with that is like the every boat ramp having a mercury advisory. You know, like that's commonplace everywhere is mercury advisors mm -hmm. don't eat too much fish but i don't personally know anyone that's ever ran into mercury poisoning problem can i tell you a funny story about mm -hmm. that go ahead Doug. you got something to say though uh yeah the, the thing that concerns me and if someone who's in that area would uh write in i i'd, I'd like to follow up this being a kid who grew up with a dairy farm he said that the word is the local dairy farmers have killed off their stock as well. And my question is, one, did that happen? Our questions are, one, did that happen? And two, if so, why? 
because in um, in the livestock world, if there is a disease issue, and there are a, a handful of them, that the uh, the Department of Agriculture requires you to destroy your herd. And I'm wondering if this was something that was required or if they're just saying, well, this is a mess. Or I, mean, I can't it, imagine. It, like, I, we don't even know if it's true or not. Well, right. That's what I'm asking. Is it true? If so, you know, so. Skepticism is the chastity, the intellect. Though. That's I, right. I'm with you. Uh, you didn't tell that you're a mercury story. Oh, so my dad, right. uh, one of my dad's main fishing buddies when I was a kid is this dude, Ron, and Ron was also a commercial bait fisherman. So he made his living catching live bait and selling live he had his own bait shop, but then he distributed live bait to other bait shops. And the dude fished all the time and lived off fish, lived off freshwater fish. And they were scouring around. The University of Michigan was scouring around for old dudes like him that had been eating fish their whole life out of the Great Lakes. And they would send him, and he would periodically go down to University of Michigan to do these mercury tests. And part of it would be these memory quizzes. And they'd say to him, like, okay, you got to go to the grocery store. And get, you know, milk, eggs, bread, black pepper, olive oil, and lettuce. And then he'd have to sit there for a minute and they'd, they'd say, uh, what do you got to get at the grocery store? And in describing these tests to me, he said to me, uh, man, I wouldn't have been able to remember that if I never ate fish at all. <laughs> uh, we had another thing, cadmium and liver. I don't know. Like. I'm not downplaying cadmium and liver, but I don't know. I'm just. You guys want to talk more about stuff that's hiding in deer? Not really. I mean, cadmium can cause some some health issues. Okay. It's, um, it's probably a local. I mean, it's just probably a local thing, and you could probably find a lot of these little situations where there's some kind of contamination and it gets concentrated in the liver. New Hampshire Fishing Game advises against eating deer liver because of PFAS. <laughs> same thing we just talked about, and cadmium. Whew. All right, here's another disease, and we've covered this a little bit, but I just want to get uh, get a little. Um, I got a question for each of you around EHD. Um, epizootic hemorrhagic disease, EHD, seems to be like I've never heard any suggestion that there's any effect on humans, hmm. but it's now damn effective on deer, and uh, you you can have an EHD outbreak that you, you, you'll commonly hear. 50, 75% of a deer herd getting carried off by EHD. Uh, we had had a, we, we were having a discussion about EHD recently and someone mentioned that it's, that it's um, always fatal to deer and, and got some feedback. That that's in fact, not the case. So go right. ahead and uh, talk about that. Yeah, they, they may have been I'm thinking about CWD, which we talk about as always fatal, but EHD, actually a large percentage of the deer population survives EHD every year. Even when you get those big die-offs like that, but the ones that survive get antibody levels, and that makes them immune to it for a year or two. So you generally don't get EHD die-offs in consecutive years. You'll get a you'll get it like a, especially a dry summer, a real drought summer, and you'll get a really bad EHD year, and you'll you'll lose a lot of them in late summer, and then the next year, all the ones that survive have antibody levels, and so the next year you won't have an EHD problem no matter what because they're all pretty well protected with with the immunity to that. Here's a, this, this seems like a paradox. Maybe you can explain this to me. EHD, this isn't the paradox, but this, I'll get to the paradox in a minute. Like EHD is spread from deer to deer by a biting midge. Mm-hmm. Okay. Like a bite, just same way you might get, humans might get malaria, right? Like mm-hmm. mosquito goes to one person and they move yeah. an infectious disease. Not from, animal to animal. But from that person to the next. 
Why is drought bad? It seems like a wet year would make more midge because it's like an aquatic yep. thing. Like a wet year would make more midges out on the landscape. And then some people say, well, it's because it concentrates deer. Mm-hmm. I think that's it. That's what I've always heard. It's the concentration. You have you you have fewer water sources. You probably have fewer midges, but you have all of the deer and all of the midges all in the same location, and you can get that circulation, that concentration. Okay. Now, what what I'd always heard is that the like real enemy it's a trivia pursuit guy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the real enemy of deer hunters when it comes to EHD is if you have a very wet year followed by a very dry year because. What really like gives those midges a home and, and boosts their populations and makes whitetail come in contact with them is long mud lines. So if you have like a super wet spring or a super wet 2011 and then a super dry summer or a super dry 2012, that's when you get these long mud lines uh, where you get a lot of those biting midges at. Hmm. Yeah, they, we found in Arizona, actually they've documented that those little midges, Chelicoides varipennis, can actually reproduce in the wetness of cactus. Mm. Oh. A little bit of moisture like that. Oh, shit. So All right, for, Doug, let me hit you with this one. Oh, go ahead. I, I have a question for Jim, and that is, um, is it, it seems as though EHD has been more of a mm, southern mm-hmm. yeah. uh, issue, why, and, but, and now it's, it's, it's more- In the gr- mm, northern Great Plains yeah, recently. Yeah, well, and I mean, it's reported um, anecdotally by hunters in Wisconsin, but- mm. um, uh, but, but, but why is that, why is there that cutoff just, uh, I mean, with the, with the midge? I think it's, a, I think it's a climate factor with, uh, with midges and just where midge populations are, or those kind of midge populations are, and you get too far north and you just don't have those kind of vector populations in there. They did, um, Mississippi State University one time brought deer from Michigan down to Mississippi and they actually brought Mississippi deer and put in the pens in Michigan. And they found that those Northern deer brought down to Mississippi had a very high mortality rate from, from EHD. No shit, really. Because northern deer didn't have antibodies or previous yeah. exposure at least to those strains. And there's two different types of EHD, and there's about seven different serotypes of blue tongue virus, which is another closely related yeah. hemorrhagic disease. But So when people use blue deer, tongue and EHD synonymously, that's not correct. That's not correct. They're different diseases. They just have kind of the same clinical symptoms. They're both hemorrhagic diseases. Are they both spread by midges? Yes. Okay. And and the blue tongue is normally kind of a sheep pronghorn antelope. Or should I just say antelope? We got one. I would go American pronghorn. Someone that was mad with I've it. switched, dude. <laughs> I've switched to pronghorn. I don't get that worked up about My it. My state's fish and game regulations <laughs> have not. They haven't. We have the Arizona Antelope Foundation. Yeah. But the blue tongue is kind of an antelope sheep thing, and the EHD is more of a deer cow thing for some reason. It got separates it. that way. Uh, I, I, I got a question for Doug, but I got one more thing on EHD. This person's game, or someone wrote in, their game warden was saying that deformed hooves. Mm-hmm. You buy that? Yeah, absolutely. The, the hooves, when they get EHD and survive it, their hooves will slough off and they'll have a crack, a line across those hooves. So you can, in the fall, have, just look at hunter-harvested deer that come through and you'll see some like stress lines and cracks on the hooves. And that's evidence that they had. Another interesting thing is, too, is the hemorrhagic disease causes a hemorrhaging of all the tissues, including the testicles. And the bucks that have... Uh, a lot of hemorrhaging in the testicles during the, the antler development period can produce cactus bucks. So, so there's a, a veterinarian, Karen Fox, oh. who led some research that, that documented not 100%, but, but very clear that uh, EHD was producing some cactus bucks. In, no in shit. Area. Okay. I love uh, Jim. Everything he brings is great. 
<laughs> you like Jim? Yeah, that's awesome. He just like my testicle stories. Yeah. <laughs> Spencer, Spencer perked right up. Um, <laughs> this guy says too when he he had a doe that had the def- he sent a picture of the deformed hooves with that crack and a, and a curvature to him. He said when I processed her, the meat was very dark and had a foul odor. Yeah, I I read that. That's unusual. If the animals like viremic and and hemorrhaging, I can absolutely see. But just if it's an animal that survived, maybe it just still had some of those lingering effects of all that hemorrhaging. I don't know. Yeah. Um, he brought up a thing. You know, you hear people say the dogs wouldn't even eat it. You know what was interesting is I was cleaning a coyote skull. I had snared a coyote and was cleaning the skull up the other day. And usually when I do that, like when I clean beaver skulls or muskrat skulls, whatever, uh, my dog, like, she knows the minute she can smell that simmering pot, like she knows what's coming. She would not eat that. Uh, you're going to think I'm crazy when I tell you this. She would not eat that coyote head pickings. Okay. Hmm. But it sat in her bowl long enough. I'm not, I got mm-hmm. eyewitnesses. <laughs> she ate, she drank the broth, but wouldn't eat the chunks, but she drank the broth out of the bowl. And I'm not kidding you, man. Five minutes later, walked over by the kitchen table and puked. Wow. wow. It's not a dog eat dog world. <laughs> well done. Yeah. Like there that. it is. Yeah, it was the weirdest thing, dude. And that dog never pukes. That dog mm. eats, can eat. You wouldn't believe what that dog can eat. Never pukes. Does she eat duck tongue? I I put duck tongue in front of Yupik's face and he just I guarantee she did. It. It. You know what uh you know what a favorite snack is for uh the, the fur handler Stu Miller? What his dog likes is uh, the back feet on beavers. It's like a chew. It's like ah. a preferred chew toy ah. <laughs> for his dog, and it gets dazed out of a beaver's back foot. Wow, Doug, uh, quick EHD uh, question for you. Sure. If it's a widely held conviction that slowing the spread that uh, uh, that, that slowing the spread of CWD often involves lowering deer numbers. Yes. Right? That like you'll like contagion rates will fall if there's less deer having less contact. It's a widely held conviction. In fact, um, in many states, when there's a CWD outbreak, one of the first steps you take is to try to go into the hot zone, reduce numbers to reduce spread and to and to make it the uh, animals be less incentivized to strike off and do long journeys to find areas that aren't so crowded. Have you heard anyone, is this, a, is this a belief that anyone expresses, that E8, has you ever heard anyone be like, EHD giving a real wallop to a deer population could be beneficial to really dramatically lowering a deer population, thereby perhaps slowing CWD spread? Has anyone ever said this before, or am I the only person that ever like, kicked around that correlation. A very uh, smart man that I talk with this stuff about a lot um, has uh, has said that. I mean, um, I summed it up in that uh, EHD could do the work that um, hunters are not. Um, and because EHD is, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Jim, is uh, it, it's indiscriminate. It's going to kill across the, across the population. So big giant bucks down to fawns. Um, which is part of what we need to do too. It's interesting because um, some some hunters in my area and people that I know and 
anyway, and know and 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 know them to be good people, um, have said, "Oh, well, I had EHD in my place this year. We found six uh, deer around a, a little pond by, and and that's being like wildfire through the local community." I, and I wonder if part of that. I mean, I'm not, I don't question that he found six dead deer around his pond. I and and so then they're saying, well, it's EHD, and I was like, well, okay. Did the biologist come out and confirm that? And as I understand, you have to do that pretty quickly if mm-hmm. you're going to catch the virus and all of that. Yep. So like 72 hours or something like yeah. that. Um, and so of course that they they didn't. Um, I also know a couple of the people who are spreading that to be very concerned about the. Um, uh, policies uh, and 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 ideas that I'm uh, working on to reduce deer population. Guys, so in our area. they might be incentivized, be like, ah, it's CHD. It's not CWD. Well, that, oh, no, 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 no. That um, well, we don't need to reduce the deer oh, herd because uh, EHD is, is doing it for us. EHD is doing it for you. Uh, we'll get into some stats about CWD in your area in a minute here. Okay. Oh, you know what I was going to mention? Spent, you know Spencer's like... Um, I love Spencer, I want to say. Well, I would become one of my favorite people. I wouldn't like him <laughs> if I was you. Spencer tries to... Uh, Spencer tries to suppress information about CWD because he believes it's not sexy. Spencer believes that people are tired of hearing about it. Well... Uh, he's, he's, so he tries to suppress it. He's right that it isn't <laughs> isn't uh, sexy. I think that what Spencer is trying to do is to keep things interesting, and uh, and I think that's a healthy discussion about. <laughs> is this, <laughs> I think it's a healthy discussion. It's like how much of this um, should we be talking about? I can tell you this. You remember those commercials when you were a kid that said, "Ignore your teeth, and they'll go away." <laughs> remember those? Come on, you all remember them, right? Nope. No, but I like it. <laughs> Oh, well, I remember that, but maybe it's because where I grew up. Anyway, uh, you know, ignore CWD and it won't go away. So I'm turning that. I like it though, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, I think in bumper stickers, so that's good. Yeah, you know, but the problem, I I like the, the problem with that slogan is um, you're asking a lot of people because you're trying to get them to remember some shit that I don't remember. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Keep working on it. You'll you'll come up with a good one. Oh, no, Doug already has it. Listen. I don't know if you guys know this. It's not ours. It's just our turn. Mm-hmm. Like Doug made that up nice, but like, he didn't make that up. I'm telling you, man. I don't, Spencer, you're good on Google. <laughs> Google Listen, that shit. I've done it. You go try to find. I challenge you. Any other reference? You type that shit into Google. It's it's like a Doug Duran festival <laughs> <laughs> for pages and pages and pages. And then you get to the end of the Doug Duran stuff. It's a black hole. There's nothing. Mm. There's nothing. When Doug, like Doug, made that up, and did you make up um, pay for what? what give the give the rallying cry. Buy, buy time and pay for science. Did you make that up? Yeah, well, I don't. I, yeah. <laughs> I that's mean, I, the, I had not heard it before, but that's what you know. Sort of the CWD thing. Uh, my uh, my attitude about chronic wasting disease is, is that buy time, pay for science. And um, I mean that that encompasses an awful lot, doesn't it? I mean, let's slow the spread. Let's um, let's um, uh, reduce prevalence in areas where it exists. Um, let's preserve deer hunting in those areas. I, I'm uh, Spencer has an open invitation to come to the farm and. And deer hunt with me, and and part of the reason is is that I'm just gonna like lay CWD on him the whole time. But <laughs> oh yeah, man, uh, you gonna sex him up with some <laughs> CWD talk. But Cal was just there, and Cal's like, you know, at some point, 
I mean, we had our CWD discussions and everything, but he's like, at some point, you're just deer hunting. I was like, yeah. I mean, it's not like we're wandering around like, uh, CWD, you know. (laughs) Um, Hazmat suits. (laughs) But, you know, and so, um, I mean, at the end of the day, it's been around long enough by us, um, and I can talk about what's happened on our farm in our area, but that, that, you you know, it's, it's sort of that new norm. Get used to it. I've got the information. I know what I'm supposed to do. Here are the things that we can do. I get involved politically and, um, you know, as an activist about us not doing what we should be doing. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, that's what concerns me more than anything. And that's like following the science. Well, let's follow the science. And the science says we need to be doing a better job of demographic control, population control, um, and we're not. And in Wisconsin, we're really good. I mean, you can go onto the Wisconsin DNR CWD web, uh, website and go to CWD and deer metrics and all of this. And we've got great information on there. And I applaud our Department of Natural Resources for that. But what we don't do is a very good job we don't, uh, at all of, of uh, doing anything to control it, mostly because it's not science, it's politics, which goes back to that discussion we were having earlier. Mm-hmm. You get mad at me a little bit, and I remember you got one of the times you All got the time. most. Yeah, one of the times you got <laughs> most mad at me is I had expressed to you. No, I had expressed, and you wrote me a real mean email, like it's actually kind of like a mean email. I was pissed off, and uh, I had said, I had said something to the effect of, if I wasn't worried about potential transmission to humans down the road, that 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 this thing would mutate and spread to humans or spread to livestock. No, I didn't even bring up livestock. Humans. If it, that, that my obsession with concern about CWD, I didn't put it quite this way, but would fall like 90%. Like if God came down and said, listen, bro, no human will ever get CWD. I would feel 90%. My, my concerns would be alleviated by 90%. And Doug sent me a big old, oh my, you got personal in it. It's like a mean old email, mean yeah, old text message. I, and um, a side note, Pat Durkin has told me that I need to get, an, speaking of developing apps, that it I makes to, your text messages sound nicer? No, that oh. I need to get an app that once I start typing shit like that, that it will not allow me to send it until my blood pressure goes down and yeah. I have a chance to review it. Doug oh. even had like a threat to me. He's like basically like... Uh, Really? No, you didn't, not that you're going to come beat me up or anything, but it was like a threat, like um, one, you know, one sentence like that can destroy decades of work and. Well, I think that's. I, <laughs> <laughs> He's going to double down on it. I'll, I'll, <laughs> hey, 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 get the, the, hook that app up to your mouth. Too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Jim, uh, I want to get back to just some stuff about Wisconsin. Um, and they like. I want to talk about CW with, with Jim's going to talk about a new outbreak, like a new state added to the long list of states that now have CWD. Um, this will speak to Ross, Ross being from Idaho. Jim's going to talk about that. And then, uh, and then Doug, I, I want to get like kind of anecdotal and local and talk about like in your neck of the woods, what's going on? Like, like how is deer hunting just getting different? And, and I think it's going to be like an alarm, but let him do the Idaho deal, but, but collect your thoughts sort of, Deer hunting is just different now, man. And and I think that this difference is going to become more widespread over time. And there's going to be a lot, hell of a lot more stories like Doug's story uh, from the last couple 
deer seasons in Wisconsin. But uh, hit us first, like Idaho. Like, how's this happen? All of a sudden, someone in Idaho is like, holy shit, this deer's got CWD. Yeah, yeah CWD spreading, you know, increasing in prevalence where it is. And prevalence is a percent of the animals in the population that is positive. And, it, and it's spreading. And, and Idaho just joined the CWD club, being the 27th state with uh, CWD positive. What was interesting about Idaho is it was found on the western side of the state. And there's no CWD yet in Washington in those states to the west, but there's CWD crowding in on three sides from Wyoming and Utah and, and Montana coming in from the east side. So it was really interesting that this first incident was two bucks that were harvested in October of this year in on the west side of the, the state there. And I, So it's all over. I mean, so I think, well, I it's, it's got to be, there's got to be a lot of <clears throat> filling in the hole, filling in the gaps. And right? that might be what's going on here because they just developed a new CWD plan for the state in 2021. And part of that was we're going to test the panhandle in the northern tip every year. And we're going to test two units over on the eastern border every year because that's where we expect it to come from. And then there's three other units in the rest of the state. They're going to rotate. And, and so the first year they tested this one unit that was going to rotate. Like just kind of like thrown in like a fluke. Yeah, and th- so they just started testing there, and and they found it. And the fact that it's on the west side of the state, I would expect them to be filling in the blanks once they start sampling a little more. I've never got your perspective on. You know what I was saying about the the human infection risk. Do you uh, where do you fall on it personally? Or, or- I've never killed a deer that was CWD positive, so I've never had to make the decision. Um, I think about four decades of people in the Northern Rockies eating CWD positive deer, and it's never jumped the human barrier into mm-hmm. humans. That gives me a lot of comfort. Um, but the CDC and, and um, World Health Organization recommend that nothing that's been positive with prions enter the human food chain. And the CDC recommends you, th- you throw the deer out. And so Man, I know those recommendations are, are out there. Those guys are a little jumpy though, I feel. I, I think it's a personal decision. I, I, I would probably not have uh, any qualms eating one myself. Is that right? It was positive because of four decades of, of pretty high incidents in Wyoming, Colorado, and nobody's gotten sick. But if you got little kids around the table, oh, got a man. wife, maybe a pregnant wife, that's kind of a different conversation. And it's a personal decision. I agree. And, and um, I talk about this more often than uh, I want to, and certainly more than Spencer wants me to. But um, <laughs> it is a personal decision. And what I've been finding is um, – that people who are going to eat it anyway don't get their deer tested. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's a little troubling in that, yeah, you've got I, – I, I would never I, – I, I have killed a CWD-positive deer. Um, actually, the one that I killed, a friend of mine took it, um, and uh, he ended up eating it. And uh, I already had – you know, Freezerful was the first one that I killed that was positive. But anyway, I personally am, am not – have chosen not to, although even though we ha- are having positive deer on the farm, none of them are ones that I have uh, uh, butchered and kept for myself, uh, which is also a behavior thing that we can talk about. But um, I'm keeping younger deer, um, ones that are uh, that I used to think were less likely to, to have the disease. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, don't, it, it, you know, uh, if you want, it's a personal decision to do it, but don't make that decision for somebody else. And don't make it that decision for children. I, I, I just, it, I mean, mm-hmm. is, is it an abundance of caution or is it just being a good person? I think it's a little of both, you know. Lay, lay out a little bit about what, like, just what you're seeing. I mean, because you're, you, you mentioned that you describe yourself as an activist, okay? Like, uh, you're not an academic. No. Um, you're interested in CWD because you've lived CWD now. 
for 20 years. On a place, like you've lived CWD for 20 years on a place that's been in your family for a century. Mm-hmm. So like you, you, you're you sort of like living it in real time, meaning like when you look out the window or drive around on your property, it's a thing that, that and it's become, I, you know, I don't want to say like, a, you're not like, obs- you know, you're not obsessed with it, but I don't know, man. Do you, when was the last time you went a day without saying CWD? Well, in the fall, not very often. I can't, I can't I couldn't even tell you. But it, it you know, it, it's interesting because I, I wrote an article, a couple articles for uh, for Meat Eater, and they're out there, and you can and check them out. And um, part of is why one of them was why every hunter, and in fact, I said why everyone should be uh, concerned about CWD, um, from all the way from the animal rights or animal welfare people down to big giant buck uh, trophy hunters, um, and then what we can do about it. Um, and I've, I I have seen the change, and I'll be perfectly honest with you. When CWD first first you know was discovered in Wisconsin, had the DNR knocked on my door and said, "We got to kill every deer in the area," um, and your farm is right in the middle of that area, so let's get started. I'd had I'd been skeptical, you know, and kill uh, every deer. Yeah, I mean that's what they wanted to do in the eradication zone. Got it. And they, they and they tried real hard to do that, and I'd start having questions like, "Well, why is it here? Why is it here? Why is this the hot zone?" And I don't think we've ever really gotten that the answer to that question. In Wisconsin, there's been a lot of speculation, and there have been a few people that I know and mostly trust who have, you know, who anecdotally have talked about some of the things that went on down there. And I guess I don't want to get too deep into that the weeds on that. Well, I, mean, I, I don't. I don't, I don't I don't understand what you're saying right now. Like, why? How did it start in? How did it start in the Mount Horeb area? Um, that why was it first discovered there? The reason, you know, this is a, a farm analogy. If you see one rat, you got a hundred of them. Okay. And there they found they saw a sick deer and tested it for CWD, and then realized. And then they they had been doing surveillance for a while. And surveillance testing is a really interesting thing um, to me. Um, and then they, they found that it was a little more widespread, but the prevalence was really low. I mean, do you remember what those numbers were? It was, you know, like in the single digit percentages. Um, um, but what's been interesting to me about living with it, if you're asking that question is, um, what we've discovered up until, uh, four years ago, uh, we had no, um, positives and we'd been testing what was recommended? I mean, on the Duran family farm. On the Duran, the fa- in our area, and the Duran family farm, we hadn't had a positive, and we were testing every deer that they would allow us to test, and they were skewing it towards older deer, which, to the minds of the biologists, were the ones that were most apt to have it. Once we started having uh, four years ago, when we started, which was about the time I quit doing buck management and all of that, um, you know, uh, retired the sombrero and all those all those things. Um, uh, can I tell people what that means? You you were running on, like on on your family farm. You guys are running a program of like trying to grow big bucks. Yeah, we were doing like, it like let 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 bucks walk and let them grow up big. Yeah, and shooting um, does the whole time though. Oh yeah, we've we've always uh, I mean for the last twenty five years really we've been um, we've been doe killers. Um, uh, and, and remember that I when I grew up when when I first started hunting in Wisconsin. Four, four hunters had to get together in August, uh, buy their license, tear a little tag off, write their name on it and their number, send it in with some money to the DNR and apply for one doe tag. Party permit. Right? Party permit. Remember yeah. you had the badges yep. that you wore on your arm and yep. everything? It was kinda, and, but you got, to kill, you got to kill one doe with that. Now in my county, 
with every buck tag, you get four doe tags. So that's in 50 years, this is my 50th year of hunting, um, that uh, that's how much it switched, you know, in terms of population and management and stuff like that. It's just it's an important thing when people say, oh, I'm concerned about how few deer we have. I'm like, well, you should have been around in <laughs> 1971. Um, and uh, so um, what we ended up finding then when we got our first positive, it was a two and a half year old buck. And in four years, we just had the f- buck that you're supposed to let walk. Yeah, but we had already. If you're big buck managing, but I had. Oh yeah, I had already said that those all bets are off on that. Shoot whatever deer is going to make you happy, and you know, I just I got tired of. Well, I mean, you remember we had a little incident where managing people gets to be a pain in the butt, and somebody was offended that I said something about our program um, on the on on the podcast. And uh, anyway, I just like you know, for a lot of reasons, and one of them being I don't want to manage people anymore. I just want to hunt deer and want people to be happy. And oh, by the way, we have a, a situation here where we need to be more aware of what's what's going on. So let's uh, and younger deer behavior. And Jim's gonna you just tell me to shut up when it's time for me <laughs> to shut up. Younger deer tend to be the ones that travel furthest from their home range. So when we first started getting positive deer four years ago, our five, first five deer were a year and a half old buck, um, a two and a half, two two and a half year old bucks, a year and a half old doe, and a three year old doe. Those were our first five in four years. And those we, are aged by people who are actually aging deer, not guys looking at like it's that's the, a, yeah the no. sway of its back. You know, that's whatever, no yeah. no no no. That's being aged with the you know the tooth charts at the CWD test yeah, station. Yeah. Um, and so that kind of told me, and, and at the same time, in that in those 120 deer, at the same time, we were killing five and a half year old bucks and four and a half year old bucks and six year old does. And so our, our deer, quote unquote, um, on our, the ones that were sort of our core deer were, didn't, were not CWD yeah, positive. That's interesting. But the, but the yearlings that were dispersing into your area. We're bringing it. Yeah. So, I mean, that's what I anecdotally, and I guess the, the biologists are agreeing with me now, um, or they agreed with me. I'm agreeing with what my anecdotal evidence follows the what the what they're what they're saying. Um, so in four years and 120 deer, we had five positive. This year we've received. We've hold killed, on, hold on, hit, hit me with that again. I didn't catch it. 120 deer over a four year period of time that you tested. Yeah, we had every deer. We once we could test every deer, we have tested every deer. I mean, even you were there the last time. Oh, no, no, no. I just, yeah, I just wanted to make sure that I just wanted to catch the span of time and the number. Yeah. So we average about, we have been averaging about 30 deer harvested a year. Okay. Um, on our 400 and then the, you know, surrounding property, they also have, I'm able to hunt. Um, so, uh, five deer out of 120, somebody can do the math. I'll, I'll point out that you host a hell of a lot of hunters. Yeah. Uh, generally over 30 people do, uh, deer hunt our place every year. Yeah. Um, um, and we are at 29 deer right now. And we have another, we have uh bow hunting, you know, late season bow hunting. And we also have the holiday hunt, antlerless hunt coming up yet. So you'll get there. Well, we'll, we'll hit 30. I mean, I was, you know, people ask me, what's your number? And I was like, don't stop shooting. Um, and I, and honestly, I have 11 trail cameras out and they all come to a, there's a cell set up and they all come to one and I get that. And we have killed 29 deer on our farm, and you cannot tell the difference on the cell cameras. The rate of photos coming in. Yeah, the rate of photos coming in. And, I mean, sure, well, that buck isn't showing up anymore because <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. he's dead. But um, uh, it, it, so, 
Anyway, so five deer in four years, 120 over four-year period of time. So one or two a year, you know, not really a, um, so 4%, 4.5% or something like that, which I'm like, let's keep it at that, which is sort of what our management strategy has been. This year, we've killed 29 deer. We're still waiting the res- from the results for 10. We, but so 19 deer, six of them have been positive. Mm. And uh, all of the good bucks, we killed uh, um, a uh, five-and-a-half-year-old, 10-pointer, just like buck-of-a-lifetime thing. And I um, just broke my heart to find out. And But I wondered about that deer because I took, I think I sent you the pictures of them. I know I posted them on Instagram. This guy's like standing in front of me, you know, let me pose here in front of the sign for you and then walk down. I mean, he was, it seemed like, I mean, yes, rut behavior, except there wasn't a doe around. You know, and um, and so he ended up uh, being harvested by a friend of mine. And then um, all of our, so all of our bow bucks, which were uh, two and a half, three and a half, and five year, uh, five and a half year old buck, um, tested positive. And um, we've had um, another buck test positive and two does. And one was a, uh, I'm sorry, both the does were three year old, were aged at three years old. So um, feel a little bit like we're losing the battle. And part of, part of that is um, because the population is still really high. Did you know Rocket Money can cancel a subscription for you? They'll even alert you when there's been an increase in a subscription price and negotiate rates for you. I can see my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, Rocket Money can help me cancel it with just a few taps. You wouldn't believe how many people are paying for subscriptions they don't use. This happened to me. It's annoying. This helps you find it out and get rid of it. Well, Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions and monitors your spending and helps lower your bills so you can grow your savings. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. That's rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. Rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. The single most valuable tool I have for chasing turkeys next to my scatter gun is the Onyx Hunt app. If I'm hunting turkeys, I'm using Onyx. If I'm not hunting turkeys, I'm using Onyx. I'm always using Onyx. I live by that stuff. I can't tell you the number of birds this app has put me on by allowing me to easily find new areas to hunt. It's invaluable. I use it all the time. Even properties I know super well. And I'm at my buddy Bubbly Doug's house. I'm using Onyx, and I've hunted this place a million times. With their compass mode, I can pinpoint exactly on the map where a gobble rang out from and then figure out the perfect spot to set up. Meaning, if I'm sitting there, let's say I'm at Bubbly Doug's, and I'm in the navel, and I hear, Pow! I'll like instinctively pull up Bubbly Doug's place on on X and I'll look at the topography and I'll be like, oh, that sucker must be over in that little opening over there. Waypoints also and the ability to share them, okay, comes in handy every spring. Whether that's revisiting old waypoints where I've been on birds before or sharing them to buddies to help put them on birds. This app will help you find more turkeys. Onyx Hunt has a special offer for you, too. Use code MEATEATER to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com slash hunt this turkey season.
I want to tell you about an American-made success story and Black Buffalo's award-winning nicotine pouches. Black Buffalo was built by dippers with decades of smokeless tobacco use. Black Buffalo is all about the history and tradition of dip, but they understand the convenience and discretion modern-day consumers are looking for. Black Buffalo's nicotine pouches give you the versatility to consume discreetly, but keep the ritual with flavors dippers love. Mint, straight, and wintergreen, all proudly made right here in the USA. Tell them, Chili. The reason I like black buffalo pouches is, one, they're very discreet. And what I mean by that is I can throw one in and almost forget it's there. And I prefer the mint pouches. So if you're 21 or older, consume nicotine or tobacco and want to join the black buffalo herd, head over to blackbuffalo.com to learn more. You can order nicotine pouches online. They ship directly to most states or check out their store locator to purchase pouches at thousands of retail locations around the country. Black Buffalo Tobacco Alternative. Bold flavor, full pouches. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Black Buffalo products are intended for adults age 21 and older who are consumers of nicotine or tobacco. Hit me right now. um, What is a... What's a current CWD denier? What are they? What's the CWD denier saying right now? They're not saying it's not a thing anymore. They've given up on that. Oh, you know that. And they're not saying that prevalence will level off at 2%. They've given up on that. Well, I, I'm not sure that um, the person who said that has, you know, the, the uh, uh, James Kroll who uh, said that when he was our He dear, predicted it would level off at what, yeah, in Wisconsin? 2%. Pat Durkin's got him on tape saying it. So... Um, and, 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 you know, that we should take a more passive approach to CWD in Wisconsin when he was our, um, our dear trustee. So would he still, I mean, he's a, he's a, you know, he's, he's from the science community. Would he still say that it hasn't passed 2%? Um, I, I know there was some questioning of how the data is, uh, if you don't like the data, you start questioning how the data is gathered. Hmm. So I haven't heard from him. I haven't heard from James Cole recently, so I'm not sure what his stance is um, on yeah. stuff. No. The last thing that I read that he said in, um, was that, well, CWD is, uh, it, it, again, to downplay it, it's just a problem in four counties in Wisconsin. How would you like to be the counties around those four counties? Um, mm-hmm. uh, currently in our county, um, prevalence is different than percentage of deer tested. So prevalence is, as Jim described it before, but because we don't require testing, it's completely voluntary in in Wisconsin, and it sort of makes sense, right? Um, yeah, I can't picture I, I can't picture getting on board with mandatory testing, except for in surveillance areas where they're trying to figure out what's going on around here, like Idaho right now. They just mandatory. Yeah, they just added a bunch of tags, and you have to get them tested because that's the purpose. You know, I do want to walk something back because when you kill a black bear. You damn sure mandatory bring it down. Mm-hmm. When you get a river otter, you bring it down. Yeah, bobcats has to be tagged now. Yeah, no, 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 you're right. There is mandatory testing on stuff. And those every are, mountain goat, like in this state, every mountain goat, every bighorn sheep, bighorn sheep, sure. It's yeah. a volume right. thing. They're, right? ta- so, they're tagged I mean, and tested. You have to bring it for visual inspection. So uh-huh. I'm just saying, I, I at first when you said like mandatory blank, I was like, well, that's unprecedented. But then I quickly realized that it's hardly unprecedented because there's tons of shit you got to bring down. Yeah. Like, you know. Well, it'd probably be unprecedented in that volume. volume Vol- yeah, yeah. For sure. Yeah. Well, and so in a in an area, and I've had discussions with the biologists about this, and I, and I think 
Jim would agree. And if he doesn't, again, <laughs> tell me to shut up and, and correct me. But um, in an area where you know that CWD already persists, um, mandatory testing doesn't necessarily make any sense because you already know it persists there. And if you're getting enough tests from voluntary testing to to understand how it's spreading, mm, good mm-hmm. enough. Yeah, if you're getting enough. But if you get like a couple new positives in a new area, you want to know what's going on. Because like I think it was Arkansas that got their first positive and they went in and tested and they were like 10% already. The, the, the oh. prevalence rate was so high that it was obvious it had been there a long time. Yeah, Tennessee had the same know. experience. Um, there has been people on the other side, like the people who are not alarmed. I, I, I should stop out, out of out of respect. I should stop saying like CWD deniers. Let me think of another way to put it. People who are not alarmed. Okay. People, what should I call them? I don't know what the hell. CWD deniers. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Those not alarmed. There has to be an argument. There has been an argument that they're saying, dude, it's just been here. It's like, it's all over. You've been eating it. They have it. We still got a lot of deer, right? Yeah, humans haven't caught it. I think that's what they're saying. Yeah, and and uh, right, and uh, yeah, there is that evolution from uh, uh, it's 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 fake. It's a hoax. To it's always been everywhere. It's a to- yeah, it's always <laughs> it's yeah, right. No, no, it, it really is. I mean, it's like and, and you can't do anything about it. Yeah. Well, I can tell you this. This is the first year where we've we've. Uh, got sick deer on our cameras, huh. um, and it's heartbreaking when you get that. Um, I posted on my Instagram page uh, a video from uh, the Doe Derby, the, the little event that we had um, from 15 miles south of us where um, – Fella pulls into his hunting on a farm field and here's his buck laying in the weeds and it's had already dropped its antlers. It was emaciated and it was just laying there shaking and it, mm. six seconds long and it'll break your heart. Um, uh, there are uh, fawns testing positive for CWD. So if you're a big giant buck guy and prevalence is so high that fawns are testing positive, um, uh, a buck fawn is going to die from that disease in two years if he doesn't die from a bullet. Uh, so the days of big giant bucks are going to become more difficult. That said, because this guy's going to write in, um, Richland County, we are still killing big giant bucks. That's the, like, we and I have talked well, about this. I, I, I hit you up with that idea. Here, like, uh, here I am, I'm just a Joe Blow sitting there right now being like, man, how worried should I be about this? And... And you're like, it's okay. It's indisputable that CWD is always fatal. Okay. It, it kills them. It kills them in what, two years? Yep. So here you are. You're like in a hot zone. You've been dealing with CWD for how many years? Well, 20. I mean, uh, south of us. So you're still shooting big bucks. And I'm just saying, like, t- like l- l- here I am. So I'm this guy and I'm saying to you, like, okay, Doug, that's all great and fine. You've had CWD around for that long. You got this huge prevalence, but a guy just got a once in a lifetime buck on your place. So what really, if I'm not worried about catching it, what's the problem? It's not a problem on on my place now, but I can take you to a property south of us about 15 miles where they weren't killing big giant bucks anymore. They were finding them dead in the woods. Mm -hmm. And what they changed their attitude and said, well, we're just going to become deer hunters again. And, and they test every deer, and um, 
So they feel like they they feel like they've crossed that threshold where they don't have deer getting to be five years old. Jim, yeah, it it it's bound to it's going to change. It's bound to change when when you get an animal that that contracts it and is only going to live for two years. You're not going to have a lot of mature bucks out there. You're going to run out of mature but bucks. But are because, we seeing that happen in places from your perspective? I don't know personally. You know, you'd have to go to the northern Rockies, um, like Wyoming, Colorado, the places where they have forty percent prevalence in a game management unit. <clears throat> I'm just not familiar enough to know whether they're seeing changes in age structure and things. Uh, I don't know, but when you get prevalence I would think that rates, that'd be like the first thing that I think that like, like that would be the thing that, that people would be most, not most, no, the second most interesting part of this. The first most interesting part is disease transmission. In my view, the second most interesting part is like, is this the end of big giant bucks? I feel like someone would be looking at like Boone and Crockett entries coming out of these CWD mm-hmm. zones. Mm-hmm. If you've got 30 to 40% of the, of the males, one thing too, that, a lot of people don't talk about is when we talk about prevalence rates throughout the West and mule deer, prevalence rate is defined by those wildlife disease experts as the percent of the males older than one year that are positive. So That's it's very it specific. Yeah. And, and so females have a lower prevalence rate, um, but but you have you have to arrive at some kind of definition. So you're not adding a bunch of does in one state and not another state. So, so they've defined prevalence rate and can keep it consistent throughout the West as just being bucks older than a year, males older than a year, and that's prevalence rate. And so when you've got 20, 30% prevalence rate, you're just not going to get bucks that are living to six, seven, eight years old. You're going to get very few of them. Because at any given time, one-fifth of bucks over one year of age. Yeah. yeah. And so, and then it's also driven by um, population, but you can go on to the, um, uh, to the um, uh, CWD page of uh, Wisconsin DNR, and there's some uh, prevalence studies that are going on in southeastern Richland County. We're in northeastern Richland County. You can go into southeastern Richland County and see what the trends are there, and those are the areas where anecdotally it supports exactly the same thing, that the the anecdotes are it's higher prevalence in in older bucks and anecdotally we're not running out of deer because we're really good at growing deer you know birth and deer and our part of you know what it's like it's just it's shangri-la if you're a deer we've got all these groceries in the spring and summer and fall um in the winter not so much but um so we're producing a lot of deer and that's one of the things that the uh what did we call them the cwd skeptics yeah, um, we'll say, I thought they were going to, uh, I thought all the deer were going to be dead by now. It's like, yeah, I thought the prevalence was going to level off at 2%. <laughs> you know, what the hell you want to talk about here? I mean, don't, don't throw that shit at me. Let's take a look at what, what is really happening. And, um, uh, positive fawns and, and Jim could talk about this too. I'm sure about, you know, is a, is a fawn, uh, getting CWD from a positive doe, in utero, or is that you know happening after? And boy, there's some really interesting. I just haven't mm-hmm. been down that rabbit hole too far. I have talked to a couple of biologists about it, but I think I saw a, a report recently of some research that I think is still in progress that they found the malformed prion in fetal tissue, mm. not even born yet, yeah. and it's got CWD. So wow. what I'm trying, to, what I'm trying to do with 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 my here's where I'm coming from with it. And again, you can read that article. I. I like killing big giant bucks. I am not a guy who wants to go out and kill every deer just because every deer, you know, is is possible uh, because we can just, let's just kill every deer to control this disease. I want a healthy deer herd. I think we need to be talking about healthy deer management um, as opposed to, you know, big, big giant buck management. The other thing that's happening in our area, we got so deep into um, the big giant buck management, they're not rare anymore. 
I mean, oh yeah, nice 160 inch deer. We killed 200 over here. I mean, it's it's. I mean, it's true. There's still just giants being killed. A giant was killed by a neighbor. You know, same thing. 170 class buck, CWD uh, not detected. Huh. Yeah. You know, four year old buck. So there's some of that too. It's sort of like you had talked one time about COVID, and I was like, wow, another one of those things that Steve likes that I latched on or says that that I latched on to, and that was you said, boy, COVID. The thing that freaks me out about it is how sort of uh, how it affects every uh, things differently, people differently, and some people get really sick, and some people hardly get sick at all. And this is almost the same sort of thing. Yeah. But as prevalence goes up, we're going to have less of that. We have I, I I what I preach to people is it's the deer herd's going to be smaller in our area, and you know what? We can either be the ones driving that and have a nice age structure and a nice um, you know a nice balanced herd. Um, with a, a lower prevalence, or we can let CWD do it. And yeah, we can have all kinds of deer and they're going to be young ones. And 40, 40% of them are going to be positive then. Yeah. Not too. Yeah. All right, Jim, I'm going to hit you with some quick hitters. Because see, <clears throat> we got the problem. Richie's over here dying. To, he's, he's ready to play media trivia. trivia. <laughs> you doing all right over there? Uh, yeah, no, I'm doing great. This is fascinating sitting here and watch this. and Good deal. So hang in there. We're gonna do, Jim's going to do, do a bunch of quick hitters. We're going to time you on how quick you can handle all these oh. questions. <laughs> okay. Ready? Guy wrote in with a doe, an antler doe, which has got like three, it's a full on, what do you call it? It's got like double brow tines. Yeah. It's got hard, strange bases. Hard antlered, like a nice buck, mm-hmm. but it's a doe. That's an unusual, that's a really unusual case, that one that was sent in there. I've been getting these reports for forever, and, and the confusion is there's a whole bunch of different conditions that can make a buck actually look like a female. When you, when you, kill, when you kill a deer that's got antlers, you, you open the legs up, and it doesn't look like you don't find any male genitalia that's, that's obvious. <clears throat> so here I'm talking about testicles again. Spencer, pay attention. So, there's, there's, He's like, now it's getting sexy in here. There, <laughs> there's a condition called hypogonadal bucks, which, which their testicles are actually in the scrotum, but they're the size of a pea. So if you want to insult your, your, your campmates, just call them hypogonadal. <laughs> but, Got it. But they don't have the kind of uh, testosterone, and so they, they, they don't develop, as they're developing young, they don't develop the, the full male external genitalia to look normal. And so when you, when someone opens the legs, it looks like a female and they immediately declare it as, as an antler doe oh. and they go on, but it's really not. It's just a malformed buck. There's also crypt orchid males, which the testicles don't, they never descend into the scrotum. They stay in the body cavity encased in fat. And that and, throws people off. And, and so you look and there's no scrotum, there's no testicles. And, and sometimes even the penis can look like it's in a fold, like almost, almost different, almost like a female. And so that, that throws people off there too. But in that case, the testicles are in the body and they're producing testosterone and, and so they get hard antler and, and everything else. So this is a lot of those like uh, doe bucks. Sometimes they're called um, pseudo hermaphrodites. because I mean, it's like people are, really and then people are writing to you being like, it's a doe. It's a doe, yeah. yeah. And then and then you say, well, what kind of genitalia, what it looked like? Well, I don't know. We gutted it. And, you know, there's no proof. Gotcha. And so a lot of cases you don't know what's going on. But So this picture are, here, you can't really tell. Well, I, I, I think I can. Right. That's the picture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's, there's, there are cases where you have antler does, and that can happen from uh, an injury to the skull. There's a certain region, the temporal bone in the skull, that's real sensitive to if the bone's injured in, at a certain time of the year. It can produce, even in a doe, it can produce an odd antler 
coming out of the, the, the skull plate because those produce testosterone in the adrenal gland too. So they produce a little bit of testosterone. And antler development is not dependent on testosterone. Actually, antlers grow at a low point of testosterone during the year. They grow their antlers in velvet, and then you get close to rut. Testosterone levels come up. Those rising testosterone levels then dry the velvet, they shed the velvet, and then they go through rut. And after the rut, testosterone drops precipitously, and that's what triggers then the shedding of the antlers dropping off. So the antlers are growing during a period of low testosterone. So in certain cases, if a doe has a tumor on her ovary and it messes up the hormone system or she gets an injury in the skull, she can actually produce antlers. And there's cases where does have antlers that are actually reproductive and they're, and they're reproducing and have a fawn. But in, in almost every single one of those cases, the does stay in velvet because they don't have that, that dramatic increase in testosterone to dry the velvet gotcha. and shed the antlers. So they'll stay in velvet through the winter and, and even hang on to their antlers and not shed them because they don't have the testosterone. Oh, no kidding, really, yeah. But what's unusual about this is that that doe is in hard antler in that picture from Missouri. And I, and I, I wrote to the, the game warden who contacted the hunter out in the field. She sent me some more pictures. And in one of the pictures, you can almost see it. You can clearly see it doesn't have a scrotum, doesn't have a penis. It has four nipples, but males have four nipples too. In deer, a hunter called me one time, said he shot an antler doe because it had four nipples. And I said, look inside your shirt right now. Tell me what you see. <laughs> He's like, yep, four nipples. <laughs> yeah. yeah, four nipples. Yeah. But, but in that particular picture, I think I can almost see it, what looks like a vulva uh, kind of on the edge of the picture. I think that might be a, a legitimate hard antler doe, which is extremely rare. But these odd things happen. She could have something strange with her ovaries that's producing enough testosterone to do that. Okay, ready for the next one? Alyssa from Michigan wrote in, she's got a picture of a buck with cow spots. She's calling it. So Paw Paw, Michigan, a buck with cow spots. We call it piebald. Um, yep. It's like not quite like being an albino. You can clarify right. that. Right. And there's people saying like, man, you got to shoot those deer because they got health problems. Yeah, there's some truth to that. You don't need to shoot those deer. There's, there's actually that piebald condition is something that shows up here and there, especially. And there, Michigan media. made it that you can't shoot those deer. A lot. Of, it's state by state. Some states you can't shoot a white deer. You can't shoot a piebald deer. So it depends on that. But that piebald condition is a recessive genetic condition and comes along with um, deformed spine like scoliosis. Okay. Um, deformed hooves, bowed legs, short legs, short nose, short jaw. Um, sometimes internal organs are, are not formed correctly. And so there's other genetic problems with those piebald deer, but some deer, some deer die right away because of the problems when they're fawns. Some deer don't have too many of those other problems and they'll live to adulthood. And you'll have a, you'll have a buck, a mature buck that looks like Doug's favorite beer, the spotted cow from New Glarious Brewery. Got They've it. got these brown and white patches and they're always random. There's no two that are alike. They're just random on the body. And they can be sexually viable. Yeah, definitely. So mm-hmm. is it ill lot? So is it like... Um, when they make it illegal to get one, to shoot one, is that kind of just, it's just like, a, it's like an aesthetic thing. Like people want to yeah. see them. It's aesthetics. It's, it's not a common enough thing that it's going to be more common. Um, if you preserve them and so many of them are dying because of the other issues like that. It's, it's just purely a social thing. It's not going to affect any. Okay. Last, you ready for, oh, sorry. Go ahead. You ready for the last one? Yep. Deer with fangs. From the elk, my, elk ivories, deer mm-hmm. with fangs, people write in all the time. They got like a deer with some crazy teeth going on. Yeah, white-tailed mule deer do not normally have upper canine teeth, but in rare cases that we get a throwback from evolution. And, and I say that because back in the Miocene, the early dino deer or the early primitive deer, generally most of those had fangs. 
And and some of the early ones just had fangs. And then antlers kind of developed and showed up in the fossil record. And as we got more and more fangs are older in the fossil record yes. than antlers. Yep. There's some, some antlerless animals that are in the deer family depending on when you start the deer family, with big tusks like that. And the tusks probably serve the same purpose as antlers, They're as display, um, probably mostly as display, maybe as fighting, intimidation of, of rivals. Um, but then as antlers developed and got more elaborate throughout deer evolution, those fangs got smaller and smaller. And now we still have over half of the 40 species in the deer family that have upper canine teeth. And um, when you get up, when elk. you talk, when you hear someone talk about an elk ivory, like That's I'm having thing. my I'm having a necklace made for my wife um um that has elk ivory incorporated in it. That is a vestigial tusk. That's a deer fang, sure. That's just one elk are one of the species that that retain those upper upper canines. What's but, interesting about them is that how wiggly they are. Sometimes they're loose, sometimes they are firm in the in the uh-huh. socket there. But you think about um like a primitive deer probably looks a lot like a munchak with small antlers up on big stalks and then um canines. But but with what's interesting about the whitetail and mule deer not normally having canines is species that do have big canines like the Chinese water deer has big tusks. And underneath on the lower lip, underneath that fang is a black spot, black fur that kind of accentuates that white fang. Oh no kidding. And it just it kind of it kind of shows it off. But what's interesting is you look at a deer mount of a whitetail or mule deer, and they also have that black labial spot on their lower on their really? lower jaw, right where that canine would be. And so the question is did they lose their canines in most individuals and still retain that black labial spot? Is that what that black label spot's for? Because what else is it for? And you look at some other tusked animals and you see that black spot. So it's pretty interesting. It might be this evolutionary throwback from, yeah. from dino deer. Are there any other primitive characteristics? I, I thought that I've seen that uh, some of the canine deer will often have like a very black defined line above their eyes, like a that black was, eyebrow. That was one individual deer from from Louisiana. There was a deer that had. I thought that deer lived in Florida. Maybe it was. Maybe it was Florida. I think Louisiana. Oh, well, oh was it Louisiana? I think, I think Louisiana. That's what was in my head. But it had pretty big canine tusks, and then it had the strange black oh, V yeah, shape dude, on the forehead. Yeah. And so that was um, Lindsey Thomas wrote an, uh, from from uh, National Deer Association wrote an article about that and talked to me about that. And he talked a lot in that article about that being um, the, the black markings and the canines all being primitive characteristics. But no one, you know, no one really knows what the fur looked like back in the Miocene. But I had an illustrator for a, for a Mielder book that's coming up illustrate some of these extinct deer species. And I actually had him illustrate one of them with that black V from that individual in oh, Louisiana. Richard, do you feel like uh, Jim's going to kick the shit out of everybody at Trivia? Yes. <laughs> is it, is it about, if it's about Dude, deer. If you want to win, man, I'd have your sights on beating Jim. Um, that's, I'm kind of working on my angle over here. <laughs> uh, is there a high prevalence of deer questions? Um, I don't think so. Good. All right, we're, we're going to get right into it. This is kicking off, uh, what the hell year is it? 2022. <laughs> Kick off your 2022 with some hot meat eater trivia action. Hosted by... Spencer Newhart. That's right. This is trivia you're not going to get from Jeopardy or Trivial Pursuit. Hey, hold on. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Oh, okay. All right. My eraser, I'm going to think it's not in there. You got sleeves? There's an extra. <laughs> Your sleeves yeah. are even black. Okay, I'm, I'm ready. Go again. Ready? This is trivia you're not going to get from Jeopardy or Trivial Pursuit or any Barnai trivia. These are born out of Meat Eater's four verticals and made just for our Meat Eater audience. Steve, what are our four verticals? I'm going to stop doing this because I think that it's stupid. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't it, 
they don't fit. I think this makes it special. When you have a question, that well, well, right, go ahead. They don't fit. Okay. You could say like like our what we're interested here <laughs> at, at, at this year. We're in, well, our interests. Uh huh. Hunting, fishing, wild foods, wildlife conservation. But when it comes to trivia, and you ask a mountain man question, it doesn't mm-hmm. fit. Okay. I'll ask someone else that question from now on. <laughs> there is a it's prize. Out, it, listen, dude, it's outdoor trivia. Mm-hmm. But it's like <laughs> it's like specific to meat eater. Okay, then rebrand it. All right. But there's a when we come out with the actual game that you can buy, uh-huh. it's going to have a pioneers and explorers category. Sure. Okay. All right. When you go to our website. You're not going to go to a drop-down menu that says Pioneers and Explorers on it. <laughs> uh, technically, under our uh, Conservation tab okay. is where you'll find anthropology, so, so, natural so, history. Okay, so <laughs> the worst hide hunter, okay, the worst hide hunter, uh-huh. okay, Jay Wright Moore would live under conservation? The man who claims to have killed... 10,000 buffalo? Yeah, when we cover a poacher, <laughs> that goes under wildlife management, which lives under conservation. Okay, all right, let's start. There is a prize. <laughs> Meat Eater will donate $100 to the conservation organization the winner's choosing. We've played four times so far. Brody has won twice, Steve has won once, and Clay has won once. All right, we have some housekeeping. I have a punt gun update. This is a quote from the Boone and Crockett oh, Club. One? Not yet. This oh. is a quote <laughs> from the Boone and Crockett Club. Many states had outlawed the use of punt guns by the 1860s, but it wasn't working. At the turn of the 20th century, federal law was desperately needed, not just for waterfowl, but all of the nation's wildlife. Okay. (laughs) Also, I found three punt guns for sale in online auctions right now. They range from $4,000 to $8,000 and from 6 feet long to 10 feet long. One seller's selling point said that his buddy... Shoulder fired the gun and broke his collarbone. Mm. So he'd recommend you mount it on something if you shoot it again. That's what I like to hear, man. (laughs) (laughs) That's the one I want. A lot of heat behind that. Uh, Now, for today's trivia, we have a stacked room. We have Jim, who knows everything about everything. Doug, who also knows everything about everything. And then also we have Richie. If not, he'll find out. That's right. Richie is representing all meat eater listeners, so a lot of pressure, Richie. I, I, I don't know that everybody's going to vote for me to represent them. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that's how this works. You represent them all. Richie, a lot of pressure. Phil, play Thanks. music. Look, I need to know what I stand to win. Everything. How's that? You stand to win everything. Well done. All right, question one. And like every time we play, this is multiple choice for the first question. The topic is fishing. This first great question comes to us via Cody Osterhout and Rich Relihan. If you have a question you think is right for Meat Eater Trivia, you can send it to trivia at TheMeatEater.com. Question is... Dude's a pro, isn't he? He's a smooth man. Really thank good, you. Man. Thank really you. good. Which of the following trout is not actually a trout? Rainbow trout, brook trout, golden trout, or brown trout? Which of the following trout is not actually a trout? Rainbow, brook, golden, or brown? Steve has a question. No, I'm just letting you know I already got the answer. Oh, okay. It's all written We down. have a confident Steve. <laughs> uh, Jim is erasing. Uh-oh. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
The ringer is uh, questionable on the first question. Does everybody have an answer? No. Can you repeat the... Uh... Which of the following well, trout on, is not actually a trout? Rainbow, brook, golden, or brown? Rainbow, brook, golden, or brown? Gotcha. All right. Go ahead and reveal your answers. We have Corinne saying golden. Doug saying rainbow, Steve saying brook, Jim saying golden, Ross saying golden, Richie saying golden, Phil saying brook, and Sean saying golden. The correct answer is brook trout. Dang. That's right, boys. Only Phil and Steve got it correct. Brook trout are technically members of I can see me getting it right, but I'm surprised Phil got it right. I edit a fishing podcast every week. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) That shit's paying off, huh? Brook trout are technically members of the char family. Many historians consider them the most targeted fish in America up until the late 1800s. That's when brook trout were displaced by stockings of brown trout and rainbow trout across much of their range. Well done. Fill her down. Me and fill her on the board. Topic two. The topic is cooking. According to Section 319 of the Department of Eggs Code of Federal Regulations, For something to legally be called an Italian sausage, it needs to have salt, pepper, and one other spice. What is that third spice? This is a legal definition of an Italian sausage. It needs to have salt, pepper, and one other spice. I want you to tell me that third spice. I'm feeling good about this one, too. I have no clue. I'm feeling very good about this one. Does everybody have an answer? Go ahead and reveal your answers. We have Corinne saying fennel, Doug with no uh, answer, Steve second, saying fennel, Jim saying so fennel, Ross saying oregano, Richie saying sage, Phil saying paprika, and Sean without an answer. The correct answer is fennel. Ah, wow. yeah. Yeah. What'd you have, Phil? I, I, I put paprika. <laughs> or star anise. You're you not could Italian, say star anise. I gather. Huh? Uh, huh? <laughs> so fennel or star anise. Listen, man, I'm like barely Italian. <laughs> <laughs> I got an Italian name, but I'm you like talk 20, about your Sicilian uh, <laughs> listen, background. I'm 23. percent I did the I did the whole thing. I'm 23 percent Italian, two percent North African, and a whole bunch of West Western European. Yeah, but he talks about it like he's a, from the Corleone family. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Other rules include that the final product cannot have more than 35 percent fat or three percent water. If the sausage has been smoked, cooked, or cured. Those words must be used in the product name in the same size font as the words Italian sausage. Can, can you, uh, whoever wrote fennel, can you raise your hand really quick? Corinne, Steve, right here, buddy. Jim. What makes that way more embarrassing for me is that my brother cooked fennel sausage ravioli the other night. Oh. So I, so, I so should have known that. There's a sausage that we've been making that we got from this cookbook that uh, our buddy Steve Kendrat has. And me and Yanni, it's me and Yanni's like standard sausage now. It's Salt, so like deer mm-hmm. meat and fat, right? Yep. Salt, black pepper, fennel. It's Italian sausage. Listen, dude, it's Italian it is sausage. the best. It's like so simple and so good. Everyone who eats, it's like, holy shit. It's like, dude, that's three things. It is phenomenal. Mm. Plus prions. Yeah. <laughs> Question three, the topic is big game. What state has the largest population of pronghorn antelope? What state has the largest population of pronghorn antelope? We have some quick answers in the room. 
Does everybody have an answer? Not Phil. Phil now does. Go ahead and reveal your answers. We have Corinne saying Wyoming. Wyoming, 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 Wyoming. <laughs> Phil saying Arizona. Sean saying Wyoming. <laughs> the correct answer is Wyoming. Hey. <laughs> Wyoming has a commanding lead on the rest of Dude, America. Phil had such a promising start with that brook trout <laughs> shit, yeah. man. Wyoming has a commanding lead in the rest of America with about 400,000 antelope within its borders. Montana is second at 125,000. Colorado third at 70,000. And New Mexico and South Dakota share fourth place at about 40,000. So Wyoming sits on a really comfortable lead, man. And uh, their numbers, like any state's antelope numbers, fluctuate a lot. I think it was like a decade ago, they were at 500,000. Hmm. So they, they dominate the rest of the country when it comes to goats. Wow. Question four, the topic is biology. Ooh. Oh, this is a Jim Jim's, Jim's pressure. Jim's pressure. No pressure. Jim. I know. <laughs> oh, wait. Can I'll I blow go it. back and interrupt this for a second? Yeah, yeah. What do you got? We had a write-in from a biologist saying, can we please stop calling pronghorns pronghorn antelope? Nope. Tell them we're working on it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the topic, again, is biologist. This is question four. This chief vein of the thigh supplies oxygenated blood from the heart to the lower extremities. This chief vein of the thigh supplies oxygenated blood from the heart to the lower extremities. Again, a confident room. Corinne is even dancing in her chair. <laughs> no. She feels so good about her answer. No, I don't have the answer. Can you repeat that again? Oh. Yes. Who, uh, Jim? Yes, if you could repeat it. Okay. Are yeah. you fact-checking me now? No, or are no, you? no. Okay. No. All right. Uh, this chief vein of the thigh supplies oxygenated blood from the heart to the lower extremities. I love if I got it. Does everybody? I was saying you could make, first, you could make like, Jim feel yeah. better and classify this under physiology. Yeah, <laughs> I am blanking so hard right now; it's ridiculous. Yeah. Hmm. Do we need a second yet? No, we're good. I know I'm wrong. Go ahead and reveal your answers. We have Corinne saying femoral artery, femoral artery, femoral artery. Jim saying vena cava. Ross saying femoral. Richie with no answer. Phil saying femoral. And uh, no, Sean saying ephemeral. But you ephemeral. said ephemeral. Oh, I, I heard ephemeral. He's not going to get a point <laughs> for writing ephemeral. I didn't, that's that's my bad. <laughs> correct answer is femoral artery. But hey, how can an I artery? Realized, I really, I, I'd never seen it yeah, written out. I'd only heard people saying femoral. ephemeral, and I thought it was ephemeral. That's an artery I, that goes. Pro- Phil, that's an artery that goes away. Yeah, yeah. Thank <laughs> you, Steve. I'm going to protest that one though, because a vein can't be an artery. Correct. An artery can't be a yep. vein. That, oh. that was what tripped me up. That's why that I thought it was wrong. What blood vessel? I thought oh, when I looked yeah, at so be fair, definitions of the word, dude, no. I think that you got to throw that out, Spencer. Oh man, he's totally no, right. Because right. right. totally right. he, he won up to. I think Spencer gets a negative score. <laughs> man, <laughs> you got to throw it out. Spencer. I should get plus two then. Yeah, you got to throw it out. That was I'm, what tripped me up too. Mm, I'm Thank seeing places that call it a vein, but not like uh, not educated places. So you you may have me there. Okay, mm. how are we dealing with this? I would give Jim the correct answer. I think Jim would have got it if not thrown wait, off by wait, that. Uh, but what was well, Jim's answer? Well, everybody would have got it. Hold probably. on, Jim, let's just do the honesty thing. You would have gotten it? Yeah, I was thinking for more. And then I said, repeat that. Oh, a vein. Well, I can't think of a vein. Yeah, but here's, the thing, here, but here, here's where you're not thinking it through. He said supplies blood too. Yeah. So yeah, you should have been that's like, true. you should have recognized that there was a contradiction. 
If you're such a Joe Smarty Pants. I did. That's yeah. why I wanted it repeated. Right. There's a contradiction. Oh. A major yeah, there is a contradiction. Oh. you got a vein sure. supplying And he's never played before, so he might not feel comfortable. Mm. Right. Yeah, oh, yeah, that's right. He might I, not know that Spencer is, in fact, fallible. I feel bad about the question. I would give Jim credit because okay, let's he, give him credit. he would yeah. know better than anybody. Let's give Jim credit. Keep but I think everybody would. Okay, so he's a word vessel, everybody would have got it. Phil doesn't yeah. get it, though. Ephemeral? <laughs> yeah. Ephemeral's no-go. Yeah. I'm not going to argue with you. Unless Spencer's uh, going to very Sean Corinne. Who wrote Femeral? Sean Corinne, Doug, Steve. In Ross. Leonard Lee Rue's 1978 book, The Deer of North America, he Ooh. estimates that a whitetail shot in the femoral artery will only survive about 80 to 120 seconds before it runs out of oxygen in its brain and bloodstream. I can tell you that ain't true. You think faster or slower? Man, my old man hit one when I was a little kid. We found it a mile and a half away. Mm-hmm. But hit, nicked, right? It's a difference. Right. He, when we got there, he didn't have any of his stuff. And I remember he took a only thing he had. I can't remember how this worked. Like he had found his arrow somewhere along the way and, and uh, had to use, like, took a, had to gut it. He didn't have his knife or anything. And I remember him taking a, one of those Rocky Mountain broadheads apart and gutting it with one of the single little blades. The entire deer? Gutted the entire deer. Wow. I mean, what do you mean? How do you gut partial part of a deer? <laughs> I don't know if he just like open it up and then carry it on with something like use his hands from there or something. No, he did like he took it apart and I mm. remember him gutting the deer with that little that little wedge of a razor blade. Yeah, I think hog dresses where you leave everything north of the diaphragm. Yeah, they call, there's a, the Scots call it like to gl- like gl- they got a word for it. It's like the diaphragm a down a gl- or grotching or glotching. Yeah, diaphragm down like, like gut it gut it diaphragm down and they call it like a whatever the hell. I think Put that in your trivia. Okay. <laughs> We are on to question five. The topic is natural history. This next great question comes to us via Mark David Bradford. If you have a question you think is right for Meat Eater Trivia, send it to trivia at themeateater.com. Meriwether Lewis brought a dog along for the Corps of Discovery expedition. It's the only animal to complete the entire three-year journey. I need you to either give me the dog's name or tell me its breed. I didn't even know you had a damn dog. There are, uh, there, there's a sad stat I saw somewhere that there are more statues of the dog than there was, uh... Of York? Yes. Meriwether Lewis brought a dog along for the Corps of Discovery expedition. It's the only animal to complete the entire three-year journey. I need you to either well, give like, what, me what dog the breeds, dog's I don't name, even know what the hell dog or breeds tell me it's breed. Then. I should know the name too, but I can't think yeah, of I have it. No the name of the dog. Kind of breeds they had back then. I just had an illustrator illustrate that scene of them killing the first mule deer. Ah, and was the dog in it? Mm-hmm. Oh, okay, great. Oh, really? <clears throat> yep. I had to describe to the illustrator what kind of dog to draw. I Afterwards, that, I so want. They had that dog when they were starving over Lolo Pass, and no one thought to eat it. <laughs> they thought about it. They ate oh. over two hundred dogs on the expedition, but they never ate this dog. No shit. Yeah. I had no idea about this dog. Jim, tell me about the color that they painted the dog when we're done with this. Okay. I want to visit that. Does everybody have an answer? Go ahead and reveal your answers. We have Corinne saying a Newfoundland. We have Doug saying uh, an American mix, a.k.a. a mutt. Steve saying a blue tiger. Blue Blue tick. Blue tick. Jim saying a Newfoundland. Ross saying a wolfhound. Richie saying a hound. Uh, Phil saying a Newfoundland. And Sean saying a bloodhound. The correct answer is it was a Newfoundland named Seaman. How do you guys not that's know right. this? That's, that's right. I've got Corinne I've got has a Newfoundland. Newfoundland. That's right. That's I never heard you. Wow. A Newfie. How, how, how did he spell that name? 
S-E-A-M-A-N. Now, Steve, watch how this little tidbit (laughs) ties the game together. On May 14, 1805, Lewis and Clark had to perform surgery on an artery in Seaman's hind leg that was severed by a beaver bite. My favorite Lewis and Clark historian, Francis Hunter, speculates they would have used a $3.50 tourniquet that they purchased from a pharmacy in Philadelphia to stop the bleeding. According to journal entry, Seaman never went into shock and made a full recovery 10 days later. Attacked by a beaver. Attacked by a beaver. Well, how come that guy never comes on the podcast? Remember I said we should do that? <laughs> Wait. Corinne, Corinne's getting there. I have a random question, but $3.50 yeah. tourniquet, that seems is that expensive. adjusted for inflation? Because that yeah. seems crazy that expensive. expensive. That seems like a stout-ass price, yeah. don't it? For, it identified yeah. it as an axle tourniquet, which I couldn't find anything about that online. So Bit it must have been something real special. Now, I'd, I'd seen it argued about what color uh, semen was, and it, sa- it said that uh, in modern depictions of semen, he's often black because that's what a lot of modern Newfoundlands are. But if you look at the oldest paintings of semen, he was often like white with brown spots or black spots. So what color mm. is the Newfoundland in your book? Ours was black. Mm. Yeah. I think uh, some might historians have, had a little have brown in it, with that. But, but it was it was black. Did, no. you, did you get that one, Ross? No. no I don't think no. anyone got it other than... Jim. No. Corinne got oh, it. Corinne and Phil got, got it. it. One more thing. If you want to be well prepared for emergencies in the field like Lewis and Clark, Meat Eater is now selling a Meat Eater Hunter Series Acute Trauma Care Kit. It is everything you'd want in a trauma care kit, including a tourniquet, trauma shears, splint, bandages, gauze, and more. That one, you guys great, That man. one was a reach. Very good host. <laughs> oh, no. Spot and on, co- dude. And is the cost $3.50? Something like that. <laughs> <laughs> Roughly. We are halfway through trivia. Looking at the leaderboard, we have Steve and Jim and Corinne with four, and then the rest of the crowd with roughly two. It's a barn burner. Question six, the topic is conservation. What state has the most game wardens? Oh. What state has the most game wardens? Hmm. Oh, man. It's got to be this one. I'm making a wild-ass guess here. I can rationalize my wild ass guess. What state has the most game wardens? Does everybody have an answer? Go ahead and reveal your answers. We have Corinne saying Texas, Doug saying Pennsylvania, Steve saying Missouri, Jim saying Texas, Ross saying Pennsylvania, Richie saying Arizona, Phil saying Colorado, and Sean saying Texas. The correct answer is Texas. Texas has the most at 460, followed by New York at 400, really? North Carolina at 370, and California at 350. Ironically, despite North Carolina having the third most game wards in the country, as we discussed on a previous game of trivia, they rank dead last in game warden salary. Can I tell you why I went Missouri? Please. <laughs> no, it doesn't matter. You said it was an educated guess. Let's let's hear the background. They got that. that uh, they got that. License plate tax, you know, that helps pay for conservation. Mm, uh. So I thought maybe they were so flush with money that they were able to stock up. I don't know. But New York was second? Second. Wow. Think about I was debating between Texas, Florida, and California just because of population. Question seven. The topic is gear. What is the most purchased center fire rifle ammunition in America? What is the most purchased center fire rifle ammunition in America? We're talking caliber here? Correct. I feel like there's some... Yeah. Just put your answer now, buddy. You understand what <laughs> I'm going about. You know this one, don't you? 
Huh? You know this one already. I know it. Yeah. Everybody has an answer. It looks like go ahead and reveal your answers. We have Corinne saying 308, Doug saying 30-odd-6, Steve saying 223, Jim saying 30-odd-6, Ross saying 30-odd-6, Richie saying 30-odd-6, Phil without an answer, and Sean saying the 223. The correct answer is the 223 Remington. I'm tired. I don't know go. why I didn't I think was, of that. I was tired worried you were going to get obvious. me. So I was obvious. worried there might be nuance with like five, five, six there. This stat so comes from our friends yeah. at Federal Premium as well as a number of other sources. The top five most sold rounds are 223 Remington, 308 Winchester, 30 odd six Springfield, 3030 Winchester, and 270 Winchester. Wow, so that's you all like gave, an order. That's in order. That's in order. Man. Y'all gave pretty relevant answers. 223 dominates, though, along with 308, because it's also popular among plinkers. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's that's so obvious once I saw Sean's board. Question eight. The topic is biology. This next great question comes to us via Paul Province. If you think you have a question that's right for media <laughs> trivia, send it to trivia at media.com. An animal most active at dawn and dusk is crepuscular. An animal most active at nighttime is nocturnal. And an animal most active at daytime is blank. An animal most active at dawn and dusk is crepuscular. Most active at night is nocturnal. And an animal most active at daytime is blank. A Quick day, writing, a but it didn't look person. like it didn't look like confident writing. Everybody have an answer? Go ahead and reveal your answers. We have Corinne saying perky, ha-ha. Doug saying sunny. Uh, Steve saying diurnal. Jim saying diurnal. Ross saying awake. Richie saying dayurnal. Uh, Uh, He he gets it. Diurnal. We have Phil saying not a vampire and Sean saying diurnal. The correct answer is diurnal. Humans and most... Steve, Sean, Richie. Hmm. Anyone else? Jim. Man. Humans and most other primates are considered diurnal, but this puts us in the minority when you zoom out a bit because only about 20% of mammals also sleep at night. Me and Jim are neck and neck. We have two questions left, and looking at the leaderboard, we have Steve and Jim with six right each, and then Sean and Corinne with five right each. And the rest mm. of us are sucking wind. <laughs> <laughs> the rest of us are going to Google. That's right. <laughs> Question nine. The topic is public land. What federal agency has the most acres of public land? What federal agency has the most acres of public land? Now, I would not accept Department of Interior. I'm looking for an agency within the Department of the Interior. Mm, man. Damn. I'm going to write. <laughs> Everybody have an answer, Steve? Do you? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Go ahead and reveal your answers. We have Corinne saying uh, BLM. Is that what you're saying? BLM. Doug saying uh, U.S. Forestry. Steve saying BLM. Jim saying BLM. Ross saying BLM. Richie saying National Parks. Phil saying BLM and Sean saying BLM. The correct answer is BLM. BLM has 248 million acres, which is 10% of all the land in the country. That's followed by the Forest Service at 193 million acres, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service at 89 million acres, and Park Service at 84 million acres. 
I want to say that I wanted it to be forestry. (laughs) (laughs) We are on to our last question, and we have Steve and Jim tied with seven, and Sean and Corinne tied with six. So we could potentially have a four-way tie for first place. The topic is fishing. If someone says they caught a limit of copper bellies, (laughs) what popular game fish are they referring to? If someone says they caught a limit of copper bellies, what popular game fish are they referring to? A lot of pressure for four of you. Steve, Jim, Sean, and Corinne. Corinne, are you nervous? Mm, A little bit. A little bit. Jim, are you nervous? Mm -hmm, Very nervous. nervous. I'm not a fish squeezer. (laughs) I'm going to lose because of brook trout in this question. (laughs) Does everybody have an answer? No, I don't. No. Um, you gonna come up? You bet. Just you better write something yeah, down because you're right, playing for right. first place here. Go ahead and reveal your answers. We have Corinne with no answer. Doug saying carp. Steve oh. saying bluegill. We'll read the message. Jim the rest of my saying thing, pumpkin seed. Steve says we call them rust bellies. <laughs> Ross saying bass. <laughs> Richie with no answer. Phil saying smallmouth. That's a good answer, Phil. It's not right. It's a good answer. Yeah, Sean saying yellow I perch. Knew it was wrong. The correct answer is bluegill. Yeah. Don't they hybridize with pumpkin seeds? <laughs> That's close, Jim. I don't think I'm going to give it to you, though. What? <laughs> They're not the same. They were given this name because of the vibrant orange and yellow coloration you find on a bluegill's belly, which is most vibrant on males during the spawn. The copper belly moniker is most popular in the South, but according to Encyclopedia Britannica, other common nicknames for bluegill include blue sunfish, sunny, sunperch, copperheads, bream, brim, and roach clowns. Call them big old rust bellies. That's good, too. I like that. Well, Steve wins Meat Eater Trivia. <laughs> my donation. My, have we upped the donation? Are we still sitting at a, at a hundred bucks? Still at a hundo. I think we should increase it. Okay. My donation, I would like my $100 to go to the Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership, which I'll point out is very serious about paying for the science on CWD. <laughs> That's good. Rich, thanks for playing. Uh, thanks for having me. <laughs> yeah. Oh, one more thing, too, because we talked about this a little bit in the past. Jim, can you give us a heads up on uh, your boy's progress from having been oh. pretty banged up in a car wreck? Yeah, I think like, my son Cody was in a head-on collision you know, back in early October. Both broken legs, badly shattered arm, but he's got a positive attitude, and he's he's going to rehab. He's now walking with uh, with uh, a walker. And when he pulls it together, he's going to go uh, see Luke Combs. Yes, he is. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, right after the accident, they were they were planning to go to Luke Combs, and and weren't able to go, <clears throat> and through Steve, um, we're gonna we're gonna be able to let him go when he gets better, when he's able to. He'll, he'll be able to go back and shotgun a beer with him. Oh yeah, I hope so. <laughs> I hope so. But you know what? I bet it won't be as fast. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking from experience. All right, buddy. Thanks for joining. Uh, anything? Am I missing anything? No. no. Have a good year. Make a New Year's resolution. I don't know. What should it be? I got one. I just came up with mine. I hadn't thought about that before. What's that? Keep on keeping on, man. (laughs) 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 All right, everybody. Thanks.
Hey, I'm excited to share our newest sponsor here on the Meat Eater Podcast, which is Poncho Outdoors. The reason I'm excited is I buy their shirts anyways. Dude, they make some good shirts. And they even have an option where if you're like a skinny dude, you can click like the skinny dude thing. It's great. Based in Austin, Texas, Poncho is committed to crafting the world's best outdoor shirts for men. Poncho is only sold on their own website. So head over to ponchooutdoors.com, use code MEATEATER for a free hat or t-shirt with any purchase of a shirt. Poncho offers free shipping and returns, so you can try them out risk-free. Hey, if you follow wildlife news at all, you're probably aware that the island of Maui has an incredible abundance of Axis deer, so much so that they're causing ecological damage. Well, Maui Nui venison is thinning out some of those Axis deer herds and delivering venison sticks and fresh cuts to your door. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I Venison.com. Use promo code MEATEATER for 20% off your order. 